This episode of the MJ Cast is brought to you by Joel 845, gorgeous custom motorcycle fuel tanks that are sure to impress. To check out Joel's work, go to instagram.com slash joel845. Joel, thank you for sponsoring this episode of the MJ Cast. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. (laughs) Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello, and welcome to episode 129 of the MJ Cast. I'm your host, Elise Capron, and today I'm honored to be joined by two longtime Michael Jackson fans who have had a particularly special experience with the King of Pop. Our primary guest on this episode is Talitha Linehan. Talitha is the author of the recently published memoir, A Real Life Fairy Tale, Michael Jackson and Me, which details the 13-year period during which she traveled all over the world to see Michael, everywhere from concerts with thousands of other people to small gatherings in his various homes. Talitha is a writer originally from County Cork, Ireland, and she has lived in the United States since 2005, currently residing in Los Angeles. I'm also joined by Talitha's close friend, Talene. Talene is based in Pasadena, where she attended the 1993 Super Bowl, at which, of course, Michael performed the halftime show. The previous year was her very first time seeing Michael Jackson at the filming of Will You Be There, where, during multiple takes, she heard the song several times before Dangerous was even released. Talitha and Talene connected as fan friends in 2008 and shared many amazing experiences with Michael Jackson together. Ladies, I'm so happy to have you here to join us today to give us unique insights into your experiences with Michael Jackson. Your perspective not only gives other Michael Jackson fans an insider view into what it was like to be a particularly dedicated fan, but you saw firsthand how much MJ's fans truly meant to him. And you were present during the last months of his life, which for a lot of us is a time which remains shrouded in mystery and conjecture. Clearly, we have a lot to dive into, and I'm excited to get started. I do want to let listeners know that our conversation will be primarily guided by Talitha's story, particularly during the first half, and we do have a lot to discuss, so you may not be hearing too much from Talene until the second half of the interview when she will be much more a part of the discussion. Welcome to the MJ Cast, ladies. How are you both doing? Great. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Of course. Well, I just can't wait to dive into all your great, great stories. So with all of our guests, we really like to go all the way back to the beginning to start. Talitha, can you tell me about when you first discovered Michael Jackson? Okay. Well, my very earliest memory of Michael is from when I was seven years old and I watched the movie The Wiz and I didn't even know who he was. I was just instantly captivated by the scarecrow. I was intrigued. It's all I could talk about afterwards. And it was actually Actually, years later when I made that connection and realized that that was Michael. But that was when I was seven. And then a couple of years later is when I really became aware of pop culture and got into music. And I was instantly a huge fan, just like everyone I knew at the time. I loved his music. I loved his videos. 
But it was when I was 13 years old, I watched Moonwalker for the first time. And that was it. That was just everything. You know, I felt that love released within me for the very first time. It felt like I was seeing Michael, not just as an artist, but as a human being. And I knew that from then on, he'd always be a huge part of my life. I love that. Um, I still watch The Wiz on a regular basis, I have to say. And that and Moonwalker were also just completely my gateway to my Michael Jackson fandom. So I think that's wonderful. Now, you first saw Michael in concert in 1992 on the Dangerous Tour in Dublin when you were a teenager. So can you take us briefly through those early years when you first started going to shows? Right. Yes, that's right. My first time ever seeing Michael in person was on July 20. 25th, 1992. I was 15 years old at the time and I had to beg my parents for permission to go to that concert. You know, I lived in the countryside. I had a very sheltered childhood. So going to a pop concert in Dublin was a really big deal. And they said, okay, you can go, but you have to go with your aunts and you have to sit in the stands. And I, I remember being at that concert and wishing so much that I was in the front row with those other mega fans, but I was still just so grateful to be there. And it was an amazing experience. Definitely the best day of my life up to that point. And then it was four years later when I next went to see Michael, which was at the opening concert um, of the History Tour in Prague. And that was a very different experience. You know, I was an adult. I was 19 years old. So I was able to go um, alone, you know, and just go and like line up and go early and get right to the front. I actually made it to the second row. And it was a crazy experience. Like uh, the crowd experience there was the worst, (laughs) the worst ever. I was black and blue the next day. It was incredibly rough. Um, The capacity of the stadium was 125,000, but there were reports after there was up to 150,000 people at that concert, all trying to get into where I was, all trying to get to the front, you know, so uh, there were people fainting throughout the whole time I was there. I mean, we made it inside around 10 a.m. in the morning and between 10 and when Michael came on stage, there was just these stream of people being passed overhead and I got, you know, hit by limbs of bodies many times and the security kept trying to like pull me out because I was just this tiny little thing you know (laughs) among these like really hefty guys but I was like no way no I'm not leaving like I've waited my whole life for this so it was totally worth it just to see Michael like that close. What was it like to be able to get to the second row? I mean are you just like Well, I mean, normally what you would do is go the night before and line up, but I didn't know that at the time. So I just went early in the morning. There was already like a few hundred people there. The venue really wasn't going to open until two o'clock in the afternoon, but the crowd broke through and just ran into the stadium. And I mean, there was no one there to stop us. So we all just ran in and just like planted ourselves. I mean, I never showed my ticket to anyone. And then the stadium just started filling up and people were just like, people without tickets were just running in. And that's why there were so many more people there than there should have been. Um, And yeah, like I said, it was just like incredibly rough right from the beginning. It was insane. It was the most insane concert experience of my life. (laughs) And it was my second one, you know, like, so I thought that was normal. I thought that's what it was going to be like at every time. (laughs) You're like, we just all have to fight for our lives. Basically, yeah, you're lucky if you survive. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Wow. But you you kept going to shows. Because I was crazy. It was worth it. (laughs) It was worth it. I've been to a few uh, crowded concerts in my life, but never, never anything quite like that. 
So your fandom really did escalate pretty quickly. So you went from attending, you know, a concert to waiting outside hotels. And then when you were still pretty young, you became what would be known as a follower. So at the age of 20, you packed up your life and you started following Michael Jackson around on his history tour, along with your close friend who was known as Tick. And she was only 17 at the time. Can you tell me a bit about how you two managed that and what that whole adventure was like? Sure. So now we're at the summer of 1997. It's the second leg of the history tour. And initially I was planning just to go to four concerts in England and one in Ireland. But while lining up outside Wembley Stadium, and we slept there overnight, of course, to get to the front row, that's where I met Tick. And we just instantly hit it off. And we heard about these followers who followed the whole tour. And we were like, I want to do that. And she was basically like, I'll do it if you do it. And I was like, I'll do it if you do it. So (laughs) we're like, let's do it. We both had to get permission from our parents. Even though I was 20 years old, I was still a student. I was financially dependent on them. So I needed their support to do that. And obviously, she was only 17. So she needed her parents' approval as well. Fortunately, her mom... um, helped us and she planned our entire itinerary really supported us and so off we went I don't think we put too much thought into it like we left home without tickets to most concerts we were just like let's just go and we'll figure it out along the way but fortunately things worked out really well for us after a couple of concerts the crew adopted us they took us in and we ended up traveling with them from venue to venue. So we would like sleep in the cab of a truck and wake up backstage at the next concert. It was incredible. And they would take us in early as well. Like, so they would take us all the way to the front row before the gates even opened to the public. So we got to be at the front row of every single concert. It was just amazing. And I have to say, you know, I was just incredibly fortunate within Michael's world. Right from the beginning, it was like there was just this wave of good fortune carrying me around, carrying me along. Like I was always at the right place at the right time. And I always had people just help me out. So yeah, that was definitely true of, of that beginning as well. And after that is when I really started to, to travel more and, you know, hang out outside hotels and venues and to meet Michael. Well, I think that's pretty amazing that the crew really took you under their wing. I feel like a lot of these experiences, can those types of things even happen these days? I feel like we're in such a different world. You know, I don't even know if such these kind of concert experiences are possible. Um, but I, I just love that you were kind of just flying by the seat of your pants and seeing what would happen and really caring, you know, just having faith in it and it all would come together for these amazing experiences. You did mention Tick's mother and her being really helpful. How did your parents feel about you doing this, like running all over the place following Michael Jackson? Well, I think they had mixed feelings. Like I remember my mom saying like, just go do it, get it out of your system, which obviously totally backfired because <laughs> that was just the beginning, you know, but um, she thought if I did this, then I'd kind of be over it I wouldn't have to have this draw to go see him anymore so obviously the absolute opposite happens I think there were like a lot of people like a little confused about why I loved Michael so much and at first you know as a teenager people thought it was something I would grow out of and it was just like a regular teenage crush on a celebrity which is completely normal but I always knew it was something much deeper than that I always knew it was just like an integral part of myself I just couldn't really explain that to other people So I don't think my parents really got it either. But, um, you know, I'm glad they supported me financially and they gave me the permission to go. So I'm forever grateful to them. You know, I think it's I honestly think it mystifies a lot of people to this day. Um, And actually, I've heard of, you know, people within my very close circle who've read the book and they're like, "Okay, now I kind of understand it a little bit more, you know. 
Yeah. Um, why? And I think that is one of the really yeah great things about your book is it does indeed it gives insight into this whole this the perspective you had and the lifestyle you were living and just how it all happened and came together and how much it meant to you. And I think you bring that to life in in really powerful ways. We could literally spend an entire episode just around your history tour experiences, I think, but (laughs) we have so much to get to. So because you've just had so many amazing experiences with the King of Pop. So perhaps you can share one particular favorite moment from those history tour shows. Perhaps my favorite moment of all was on August 14th during the concert in Denmark in Copenhagen. Um, It was during Heal the World and Michael. So he would interact so much with people in the front row with like the regulars. So the the fans that would follow from concert to concert, he would come to recognize us. And then he would sing to us, point to us, you know, make eye contact, make various gestures. And so these were all my favorite moments during the history tours when I was having that personal interaction with them. But on that particular concert, during Heal the World, he actually bowed to Tick and me. It was a really special moment. And I understood why, um, because it, at, after the previous concert, which was in Hockenheim in Germany, we actually met Jennifer Batten backstage. And she told us Michael had pointed us out to her and said that he thought we were children who'd run away from home to follow the tour. We did look very young. I was 20, but everyone thought I was like 14. So, um, so it was really cute. We gave her a gift for Michael. And so when he he gave us more attention at that concert in Copenhagen than he'd ever given us before. And when he bowed to us during the Heal the World, it was like absolutely amazing. It was such a personal interaction and acknowledgement. And we knew it was because of that little gift, which is such a tiny thing. But that's the thing. The little things meant so much to Michael. You know, the very sweet, simple gestures really touched his heart. That's just the kind of person he was. So that's a very special memory for me. Absolutely. And your book is full of really great photos, including a photo with Jennifer Batten with this gift, which is really quite special. Thank you. (laughs) One question I would love just your frank take on is, you know, you're someone who saw a lot of the history tour shows as we've been discussing. So this is a little bit more of a sensitive question, but I'd love your thoughts. So the history tour is now more known for Michael's possible over-reliance on lip syncing, which was a far cry from his performances of years past. As somebody who did see a lot of shows, did this ever bother you as someone in the audience or was the magic of his performance just totally overwhelming and the lip syncing didn't necessarily matter? I mean, honestly, it didn't matter to me. Like nothing in the world bothered me when I was standing front row at those concerts. I was absolutely in heaven. Um, And, you know, he's perfection. He's an absolute perfectionist on stage. And as a performer, it didn't bother me in the slightest that he was lip syncing. Um, And I've really thought about it, to be honest, you know, and I think the way Michael transformed the the music video from someone just singing a song into a production, well, um, he did the same with a live performance, and he just transformed that. And for me, my, uh, history tour is all about the spectacle, you know, about the, the showmanship. So that's really what captivated me the most was, you know, the, the, every note being perfect every single night, like was incredible. I mean, there were people who followed the history tour who were strictly tour followers. So there were like the Michael Jackson fans, you know, they didn't go to see Michael offstage. It might've bothered them. They might've been like more purists when it came to the music and performance, but it certainly didn't bother me. I mean, just to be in the proximity of Michael every other night, you know, watching him do his thing, 
and I was absolutely captivated. Every single moment was mesmerizing. <laughs> absolutely. Well, I'm jealous that you got to see him live because I never <laughs> saw him live at all. Oh. So, so I would have loved to have been there. You keep talking about him as a showman. What do you think was the moment kind of in his concert that represented him at his peak showman, <laughs> showman-like? <laughs> Oh, I think the beginning. I think yeah. when the spaceship pops out, yeah, and then he emerges and he just stands and he doesn't move <laughs> a muscle. And the whole stadium of like 50, 70, 100,000 people is going crazy. He's just standing there on the stage and everyone's losing their minds, you know? So I think that shows, I mean, all Michael needed to do was stand on the stage and, you know, everybody just went nuts. <laughs> I do have one other sensitive question I would like to touch on about this era. You know, obviously, Michael Jackson did tragically pass away in preparing for This Is It. And we're going to talk about all of that in much more detail later in this discussion. Michael was reportedly engaging in some similar possible risky behaviors during the history era around prescription drug use. Did you ever see any signs of that in his performance or have any worries as a concert goer? No, not whatsoever. I mean, he was 100% on in form every single concert. I never saw any indication that there was like any issues with his health or a psychological state. Um, I only saw him off stage during history a few times, like, and very briefly. And, you know, I, there was nothing for me to gauge, uh, you know, at that point. It's like, that was my very first time seeing him. So, but I mean, he just seemed absolutely fine to me. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly nothing that I observed that would be at all worrying. Well, so going back to fun stuff, can you tell us about when you first got to meet Michael in person? Sure. So the first time I met Michael was in May of 2000. It was in London at the Dorchester Hotel. And so Michael came out. It was his first day he'd arrived and he came out that evening to go out somewhere in the city. And he got into the back of a van with a sliding door and his security guard, his bodyguard, Wayne Nagin, who had been his bodyguard for years, including during the history tour, got into the front passenger seat. And he started gesturing to Tick and me. We were standing a little bit in front of the tr of the truck of the van. And he started gesturing towards us, and we we're like, "Oh, does he is he asking us to move aside?" So we just moved aside, assuming that's what he meant. Well, he was actually calling us to him, but that's <laughs> the last thing that would have crossed our minds. You know, <laughs> we never would have expected that. So we were like moving away. So he gets out. He stops the van. The van stops. He gets out. He comes over to us and he puts um, a hand on her back, a hand on mine, and uh, one of her friends kind of got pulled along with us, and he steered us over to the van, stood us there, slid open the back door, and there inside was Michael, all alone, sitting there with a red mask on, <laughs> looking absolutely beautiful. Like, he didn't have his sunglasses on, so you could see his eyes, which as a fan was always a big deal. Like, you always wanted to see his eyes because they were just so beautiful. They were mm -hmm. the windows to his soul. Um, and I think I just babbled, to be honest, to can we just, I don't think my friend said anything and we just babbled the whole time because in that <laughs> moment, it's like, you're absolutely overwhelmed. You're so excited. It was completely unexpected. And you're trying to communicate to him everything you've wanted to communicate for like a decade, you know? So you're trying to say everything all at once. So of course, like nothing really comes out and it's complete nonsense, but I mean, no, there was lots of, I love yous. And he took his hand or our hands in his and, 
you know, it was our first real contact with him. So after that, everything changed then. Like he really knew us after that. Anytime he would see us, he would call us over and say hi. So that was kind of the beginning of this next amazing phase in my life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I do have to say that it seems like in your, in your particular fan experience, what did really make a difference was that you were always really respectful. You were never rushing up to him, like smashing the windows. You know, you always waited to be invited. And it seems, um, and just from everything else we're going to get into as well, and that you convey in your book, that um, he and his team really noticed that. And that was a big part of him letting you into his world a bit. Right. And that's why Wayne, I think, brought us over because he knew us from the history tour. Tick Mm -hmm. and I would leave concerts like a little bit early sometimes, and we would kind of figure out where Michael is going. And we would wait on the side of the road by a traffic light hoping it would turn red and sometimes it would and we would just like approach the car like but really gently and just like say oh we love you we love you you know and Wayne would be in the car with Michael and he noticed that because we saw scenes outside other stadiums where fans would just run at Michael's car and like pound against the windows and be really kind of rough and aggressive and like we just never would have dreamed of doing anything like that so yeah people did notice you know if you were really just very gentle And um, they rewarded you for it. And I think Michael rewarded us for it too, you know, by just inviting us in. It was probably such a relief from... The craziness that we've all seen in the video clips. Right. And I think that is really the more the exception than the norm. It's what video makers or or documentary makers like to show, like the pandemonium and the fan chaos. But mostly like people were really calm around him, especially if it was only a few fans and everybody was like totally chill because they knew the more relaxed we were, the more relaxed Michael would be and the more time we, we would have to spend with him. Well, definitely paid off. So yeah, so in the early 2000s, you were traveling even more, and that included coming to the United States. So you talk in your book about this time being a, quote, golden era in the fan world. Can you speak a bit to why you feel that's the case? Sure. So I mean, obviously, it wasn't the golden era in my personal life, my personal experience with Michael that would come much later when I started to spend time with him alone and became really close to him. But I do refer to the early 2000s as a golden era in the fan world. The reason I do that is that there were fans who had followed since the late 1980s, you know, fans who'd kind of come of age around that time and started following, had gone to bad concerts, then dangerous concerts. So I was part of this new generation of fans who started around the history tour and came of age around that time. And so we really started following like seriously and prolifically in the early 2000s. That's when I started going to London very often, New York, Los Angeles, DC, and so on. Anytime Michael would go anywhere, I would drop everything and go if at all possible. And I would um, meet Michael, my friends and I, we would meet Michael often several times a day during each trip. And it was really easy for us in a way, especially in the U.S., because there were never many fans in the U.S. And I remember one of those uh, original fans, Waldo, uh, as Michael nicknamed him, his name is Justin. And I remember him telling me once, like, you are so spoiled. Like, you guys don't know how easy you have it. Like, when we followed in the 80s and 90s, like, you could follow you like five times in a year and you're lucky if you met him once and you guys are meeting him like five times a day, you know? <laughs> like, so it was it was definitely a golden year in the sense, like if you started following them, you were almost immediately meeting Michael and meeting him a lot. And sure, like mostly it was very briefly, 
but that it was never, you know, the quantity that mattered. It was the quality of that experience, which was incredible. It was so magical every single time. So yeah, we were just really spoiled, you know. So going into the next phase of your fandom, you started getting access to Neverland um, in this era as well. So can you tell us when you first were able to get into Neverland and perhaps some of your favorite things about the ranch? Sure. So Neverland was somewhere I'd always considered very much off limits. It's somewhere that existed, you know, in my imagination and in a few photos and video shots that I'd ever seen from inside there. People don't realize how private Neverland really was and like how even few images there were from inside the ranch. I didn't know any fan who'd ever been inside Neverland. That seems like just such an impossible dream. And then in August 2002, I was in New York to see Michael. He was attending the MTV Music Awards. And I heard a rumor that Neverland was being open to fans a few days later. And, you know, we were like, really? Is it true? So we asked Michael, like, is this true? And he's like, oh, yeah. And he's like, you can go if you want. Like, you can join in, you know, just like go to Neverland. We're like, what? <laughs> Why where did this come from? But I couldn't make myself go because I couldn't make myself leave Michael to go to Neverland. And it was such a dilemma for me because these were my two biggest dreams, like to meet Michael and to go into Neverland. But I just, I couldn't do it. So what he said, you know, if you don't want to go now, like you just come by anytime. Like just, you're always welcome. Come to Neverland whenever you want. Wow. So in February, 2003, my fr four friends and I decided we're going to go to Neverland. And the reason we went then is that the uh, Martin Bashir documentary had just been released. And as every Everyone now knows like that documentary is infamous because of Martin Bashir's CD overtone, which suggests wrongdoing where there was none. You know, I mean, Michael's perfectly Michael in that documentary. It's beautiful. He's wonderful as always. But it's Martin Bashir who turned it into something sinister. And of course, the media got a hold of that and just ran with it. So we knew this was going to be a difficult time for Michael. We we're like, let's just go. We weren't sure if he was there or not. We heard he was. But, you know, we're never sure if rumors like that were true. We're like, let's just go and like leave some letters and gifts and like hang out there for few days so if he is around maybe he'll hear we're there and you know he'll like accept our letters and we get to show him some support and so it was actually on the last day for me of that trip I was I was due to leave um, on that day and I was hanging out that morning with my friends and suddenly the white limousine came towards the gate and we knew that Michael used that limousine a lot but so did other people you know could have been guests and the security guard actually told us it was guests leaving so we're like oh okay and then the limo came through the gates and it pulled up and this voice, which was just some male voice, it wasn't Michael's voice, said, oh, why don't you want to come in and say hi? We were like, oh, okay. We just thought it was guests because guests would often come out and want to talk to us and find out who we were, where we were from, what we were doing there. So we went to um, go and say hi to these guests in the limousine and we looked inside and there sitting in the back was Michael oh. with his children. So, <laughs> so we ended up talking to him, having a little chat, getting a picture with him, which was like my first that's actually my second picture with him, which is still like really, really special. And then he invited us to spend the day at Neverland. So he actually left. He went to Miami and we spent the day inside and he told his staff to treat us like royalty. Wow. I mean, that's just so Michael. Like we we're just fans, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I mean, that's just how he felt about his fans. Like he loved them so, so much. So what did that mean getting treated like royalty at Neverland? Oh, well, oh my God. It was almost embarrassing. Like they were just, oh, they just went out of their ways. They treated us like princesses. Like seriously, when we went towards the house. So first of all, we didn't expect to get access to the house. Like that was so off limits when fans had gone in 
the previous August in 2002, the house had been off limits. Like they'd gotten to go to the, the zoo and the theme park, maybe the movie theater, but not the house. So Joe was uh, the manager at the ranch at the time, and he was our tour guide for the day. And when he started taking us toward the house, we were like, this can't be happening. There's no way we're going inside the house. Well, not only did we get to go inside the house, but as we approached, the staff were lined up a row on each side of the entrance. And as we walked towards them, they all started like greeting us like we were princesses. Like, hi, you know, welcome to Neverland. You're so welcome. Thank you for being here. We're like, oh my God, stop it. Like, we're, we're just normal people. What are you doing? Like, oh my God, it was amazing. They made us feel like special guests. Like, seriously, it was crazy. And then we just had free reign of the place. Joe was like, just go anywhere. You know, you can like open all the books. Like, we're books of photographs of Michael that like we'd never seen before you know private photos family photos photos of him with dignitaries of you know all different like times in his life and Joe's like just go anywhere in the house like you can look at everything you can look go through all the photos and I mean like they just like treated us so well it was it was amazing they were so nice to us everyone was so nice to us wow. Wow. yeah that's sounds completely magical. Yeah. Speaking of this February 2003 visit to Neverland, you did cross paths at that time with the Arvizos. Is there anything that you can tell us about that encounter? Right. Yeah. So there were a few um, guests there at the ranch while we were present. There was uh, one of the Casios was there and Marlon Brando's son was there, Miko, who'd actually come out and talk to us a few times. And he was like so happy that we were <laughs> inside the ranch now, you know, and the Arvizos were there and we saw them a few times. They were just like hanging out on the grounds. They were in the movie theater with us when we were watching Michael's videos and they were at the house later. We had dinner at the house that evening and they were there um, at that time as well. And like we didn't really, you know, interact with them too much. We said hi. We recognized Gavin Orviso from the documentary, of course, and we're like, oh, that's cool. You know, it's really cool to see him. And like, we weren't obviously passing any judgment about them at that point. We had no idea what they were going to do and the role that they were going to play in Michael's life. So, you know, it was all cool and everything. And it was just later when everything happened that happened a few months later. Um, Brian Oxman actually reached out to us and interviewed a few of us, myself included, and put our names on the witness list because we could testify to the fact that these Arviso kids had free reign of the ranch. They could go wherever they wanted to go. They had access to it. Like they were alone with us in various situations where they could have approached us and been like, oh, help, we're being kept here against their will, which was their claim later, which of course was absolutely ludicrous and was one of many untrue claims that was disproven at the trial. I mean, later, when you look back on it, you know, it cast a, a shadow over a day for sure. Like that had been such a beautiful memory. And just to think that we were around those people that would go on to betray Michael in the worst way possible. It was a really sickening feeling. Yeah. But, you know, hey, you got to be there and see that they were having a great time at Neverland, just like you were and free reign of the place. Yeah. Do you ever kind of look back now and think that Michael would have been better off not allowing so many people into his personal life and, you know, just having free range of his house. Do you think that would have made any difference in things that were coming up very soon after this moment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's sort of one of my eternal dilemmas. Like I think, oh my God, Michael should not have been Michael. Basically, he should not have been that kind and open and loving and trusting and welcoming of everyone, even though it would mean my friends and I would never have had the magical experiences that we would have had. But on the other hand, and these evil, disgusting people wouldn't have made it their way into his lives and into his home either. So, and that's obviously the more important thing. He would have been protected, you know? 
but that's just this is who Michael was. It was the beauty of Michael, and he wasn't wrong. It's the world that was wrong. The world wasn't worthy of him, of his openness, because in an ideal world, you could be that open and trusting and suffer no negative consequences as a result. But this isn't an ideal world. There are evil people, and unfortunately, I mean, Michael opened that ranch to probably thousands and thousands of people over the years, and it was just a few bad apples that made their way in and destroyed him, destroyed his life, you know? Right. So yeah, it's an eternal dilemma in my heart. Like, oh, I, you know, in a way, I wish Michael wasn't Michael because he wouldn't have suffered so much. Right. But how can you say that then, you know? Exactly. He was, he was perfection. I mean, he was a <laughs> gift, you know? So yeah. We were just talking a few moments ago about this, you know, golden age for the MJ fans. But of course, that all changed with the trial. So the first hearing you attended was in April of 2004. And then you actually ended up moving from Germany to California so that you could attend the trial full time. Can you give us a bit of a sense of what it was like being there on a daily basis? Yeah, so this whole period was like so entirely different to my previous years within the fan world. It was really like night and day with this being the very dark night of the experience. I mean, there was such a weight hanging over all of us. Like we didn't know what was going to happen and we didn't trust the justice system to actually serve justice because it was shocking to me that the trial had even gone that far. You know, I kept expecting it to be thrown out at any minute because I thought this is, it's so ludicrous. It's based on Nothing. You know, Janet Visa is a complete nutcase. I mean, she everyone in the court was laughing while she was on trial. Sorry, while she was on the stand during one of the pre-trial hearings because she was insane. The woman was insane. Okay. And like Snedden very obviously had a personal vendetta against Michael. I mean, he was going, this is a prosecutor, and he was going on TV telling lies about Michael, saying there were all these other boys, you know, which wasn't true and was revealed in court. He said that I think Macaulay Culkin was going to testify against him, and that obviously wasn't true. Macaulay Culkin testified on behalf of Michael Mm -hmm. and said that there was no way he was even capable of doing anything wrong. But Snedden was trying to prejudice the whole world against Michael. He was so unprofessional. He went after him like a rabid dog. It was disgusting, you know, and it was so obvious that this was very personal. And actually, Snedden had approached the Arvizos and not the other way around. When does that happen? When do the police knock on your door and say, hey, I'm just wondering, have you been a victim of crime lately? I mean, that never happens. It's the victim that goes to the police. But so everything was really screwy and weird. And it was so obvious that this was a complete conspiracy to destroy Michael. And these people had had personal vendettas against him. The Arvizos were angry at him because he had shut them out at some point, which, you know, I mean, they'd had their time, like, but they expected to be part of Michael's world forever. They were, they had such a sense of entitlement and they couldn't take it, you know, when they were just back to being normal people again in normal world, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it was a lot of bitterness there, a lot of resentment. I think that happened a lot in Michael's world. I think people got close to him and then they felt like they had an ownership over him mm-hmm. and an entitlement and like nobody had an entitlement to Michael except his children, you know, in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. No, this was a very difficult time to be around Michael. It was, like I said, nothing like, there was no joy, you know, there was no joy. There was just this heaviness and this weight and this worry and this concern. And it was horrific to see what Michael had to experience day after day, going inside that courtroom, 
sitting near that monster that was Tom Snedden, mm-hmm. hearing lies being told about him, being unable to say a single word in his own defense. I can't even imagine. I don't think most of us could endure that. And having the worst thing possible said about him, like, I think anyone would rather be accused of murder than accused of child abuse. And for, for Michael, of all people, to be accused of that, Michael, who loved children more than life and who had just done so much to help them, you know, he was an absolute humanitarian, loved children more than life you know um so i i just don't know how he endured that and yet he remained like he just remained michael he never became bitter he never shut people out like he'd still stop every single day and thank the fans and acknowledge them and tell them you know we were staying strong we're going to get through this together i mean this man was so incredibly strong i don't know how he did it i don't know how he endured that difficult period of his life is it's horrible horrible to be there and, and witness that but at the same time, a privilege. Obviously, mm-hmm. I felt privileged to be there. You know, it's where I wanted to be. Yeah, I don't think the average person could have endured it, frankly. No. You had a unique experience um, with the trial itself as well, your perspective on it, because you managed to get a media pass through a lot of the trial. And so not only did you have a front seat view of what was playing out in the courtroom, but you were also in close proximity to many of the journalists who were covering the event. Can you speak a bit to the reporter's perspective on what was going on behind closed doors versus how they were covering the trial? Sure. Yeah. So I tell one story in my book that was really indicative um, of the the attitude in general to the trial and to what was happening. Um, so first of all, I have to say that what was happening inside the courtroom bore absolutely no relationship to what was being reported by the media. Again, it's just yin yang, completely different experiences. Like if you were sitting at home watching this trial via CNN or whatever you would have a completely different perspective. You'd think things were going really bad for Michael and that there was so much strong evidence against him versus if you're actually sitting in the courtroom and seeing what was actually taking place and how these lies that were being presented kept being unraveled and exposed for what they were day after day. I mean, Tom Rezero, Michael's lawyer, did a fantastic job with that. The truth was never reported. You know, the reporters were interested in sensationalism and scandal. Like, that's what, I guess, guaranteed good ratings. That's what sold newspapers and I mean it was shocking to me because I studied journalism at university um, as a writer my whole life like I've, I've written professionally I've reported and for me like journalism should be an ethical practice and as a reporter it's your duty to report the truth and to be objective and in case where there are two sides to report both sides equally that's not what was happening though during the trial it was only the prosecution side that was being reported. And like I said, there was a couple of interactions actually that I talk about in the book that are very revealing. So one of them was um, a conversation I had with a young journalist from a tabloid, a British tabloid. And I asked her, you know, how it was going. And she said, oh, like during the first half when the prosecution presents their case, that I was really busy. Like, I, you know, I was filing a lot of stories. But she said, now not so much. They're not really interested in the second half. Oh, they're not really interested in the defense side of things. They're not really interested in the defense case and the truth that's now being presented. That's really not interesting to them. Why would they want to report that? That was really disgusting, actually. And another case, I heard um, a reporter towards the end of the trial express his opinion that, you know, the prosecutor really hadn't presented a strong case, that there wasn't enough evidence to convict Michael. And he, he was pretty sure that um, it would be a verdict of not guilty. I saw that exact same reporter on TV that night saying the opposite thing, saying that it was really bad for Michael, that prosecution case had been really strong, and that a conviction was inevitable. 
And that's what was being fed into the public arena throughout the trial. It was just this lie. It was disgusting. You know, absolutely disgusting. Michael didn't have a chance. And that's why a lot of people, unfortunately, think he's guilty to this day. And they think, oh, that he got away with it because of celebrity. Mm-hmm. But actually, it's a celebrity that caused this in the first place by making him such a target. And it's a celebrity, I think, that was the reason, his celebrity status, that was the reason why the reporting was so biased against him, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know why. The media has just never given Michael a chance. I don't know why. Well, there's always just been too much money to be made by tearing him down. I guess so. I guess so. It's very depressing. I agree. You do have one short quote in the book that I'd love to read. I think it's really powerful. You write, in later years, I never asked Michael about the trial because I never wanted to turn his attention to such darkness, but he brought it up a few times. During a late night conversation in September 2008, he told me, what I went through, it just showed me that there's so much evil in the world, but there's also so much beauty. You were there for me. I wrote a song about you, the fans, how you were there for me in my darkest hour in my deepest despair. I've written a song about all of you, how much you helped me, what you do for me. And I just think that is such a beautiful testament that you know, someone who went through such a devastating experience, clearly your presence, the fans presence there, I think is what got him through. And so I just want to say, thank you for doing that. Because I don't know if he would have really made it through otherwise. And I really think that made the difference. And it shows how much he relied on his fans as his family in a lot of ways. I agree. Thank you. And and thank you to all the fans who were there, whether they were there in present at Santa Maria or not, you know, just being there even from afar and just sending good energy and telling people around them the truth about what was really happening. I think that every fan was there in some way, you know? I think it's amazing you could be there for so much of it. Ladies, let's take a moment for our first sponsor break. Here at the MJ cast, we are lucky enough to be part of an incredible community of people. And part of our goal with the show is to support other creators who are doing great work. As listeners know, for the past year, we've started featuring sponsors and ads on the podcast. These sponsorships help cover the bottom line costs it takes to run the show, such as website hosting expenses and equipment, as well as donations to causes MJ fans care about. Some of these sponsors have been members of our MJ fam, such as Crackcorn, while others are larger companies who support us through affiliate links. Looking ahead to the rest of Season 7, we are excited to focus our sponsorship program on MJ Fan community members. And so I'm happy to announce our first episode-specific sponsor of this season, Custom Paint by Joel845. Joel creates gorgeous custom motorcycle fuel tanks using what he calls custom functional artwork. He combines his one-of-a-kind art with automotive paint finishing and specializes in recreating old patina. His work is stunning. He's even created a few MJ-themed projects. Joel has also recently launched a merch shop where you can buy t-shirts and stickers, I own both, in addition to his custom artwork. He also happens to be an amazing person and a really good friend. He's a great supporter of the show, our favorite desert Viking, and so we're truly honored to have him as this episode's sponsor. Please be sure to check out his work on Instagram at Joel845 to help us each support each other and bring attention to the brilliant creative work that exists within our very own MJ community. Thank you so much for sponsoring this episode of the MJ Cast, Joel. 
And while I'm on the topic of things that I'm proud of, I'm so happy to announce that this is the first episode of the MJ cast featuring all women. And it's our first episode to release after International Women's Day 2021. I couldn't be prouder. If you are interested in being a future episode sponsor or in working with the MJ cast in some capacity, please feel free to reach out to us at the MJcast at iCloud.com. Thank you again, Joel. So although your book covers a 13-year period, more than half the book is focused on your personal golden era, which was really from 2007 to 2009. And that's when your life as a fan changed quite a bit. So you were able to start interacting a lot more on a personal level with Michael. So during this time, how would you say that things were different in 2007 when Michael had returned from Bahrain and was living in Las Vegas? Sure. So my experience from then on was very different to prior to that part that I had had more kind of like the regular fan follower experience where I went places when it was very public or I went with friends. In every case, I went with friends. I was never anywhere alone. And then suddenly um, after Michael left Ireland, he moved to the U.S. and I was living in the U.S. And, you know, all my friends were in Europe, like basically all the prolific followers were based in Europe. So I was the only one there. And I started seeing him alone and uh, seeing him very often. So in 2007, 08 and 09, I got to see him like during over several months, I would see him like almost every day or every other day. And so I really built a a relationship with him during that time. I was just very lucky, you know, I mean, Michael loved all of his fans and he connected with some more than others for sure. But there were a lot of fans that he had a really strong connection with who would have become much closer to him if they'd had the opportunities I had. You know, it was just I had that time and space to spend with him. So it just built the relationship just built and, you know, intensified really. And I became really close to him in those last years. And did you feel like he was any different at this point after the trial? Do you think it had an effect on how he interacted with people or anything like that? Um, I'm sure Michael was, I mean, obviously deeply traumatized by the trial. And I had heard from friends who'd seen him during the period where I hadn't seen. It was about a year and a half after the trial where I didn't see him at all Mm -hmm. because I was living in the US and he was over in Europe. But my friends who went to see him during that period, they told me like it was more difficult to meet him again. So it was kind of like those earlier years, Mm -hmm. like I talked about in the 90s. He was a little more inaccessible. That may be because he was so wounded from the trial. However, when they did get to see him, it was the same Michael. And I think that's what's so remarkable about him. Like that was his strength, you know, as, as a warrior, he didn't put up a shield. You know, that's the stronger warrior who doesn't put a shield up, who just remains so open and vulnerable. That was his beauty. And I mean, he never stopped trusting people and he never stopped letting people in. And I think that's just so incredible about him, you know. Um, So it was the same Michael, for sure, like just open and loving as ever. I mean, oh, my God, people can't even imagine how loving he was and how humble. Also, you're around the most famous person on the planet, one of the most famous people to ever live. And he's just so humble and gentle and shy and timid. So Mm -hmm. it was absolutely the same Michael that I got to know. I will say that or that I spent time with rather 
in those last years. I will say that in 2008, he was particularly outgoing. He would like come <laughs> out and spend time with his fans like three, four, five times a day. He would hang out for 15, 20 minutes. Like he was really into connecting. And I think that it's because he was he was getting ready to for his comeback, basically. And he wanted to interact again and he wanted to reconnect with mm -hmm. his fans in a big way. So there was a couple of months in 08 in Las Vegas, which were just absolutely incomparable. Like, I mean, I got to spend so much time with Michael. That's when he called me for the first time, invited me to the movies with him to go shopping. I mean, oh my God, it was amazing, amazing. Can you tell us about him calling you for the first time? Oh, sure. Yeah. So that was in early September 2008. And it was late at night. It was around 1am. And I was getting ready to go to bed. And my phone rang and I picked up. And it's like, hi, Talitha. I can just imagine the most surreal moment. <laughs> you know, you pick up your phone, it's Michael Jackson. Like, really? <laughs> oh, it was amazing. And the conversation was like the longest I'd ever had with him one-on-one. -on -one. I think it was a 45-minute phone call. It was extremely intimate. Like, I told Michael things I'd never told anyone in my life. Life, you know, mm -hmm. and he opened up to me, talked about his childhood a lot. He talked about difficulty. He talked about the trial. He also said really beautiful things. He said that he thought I was meant to be part of his life, you know, like he thought that it was all written in the stars and I had come to him for a reason. And I think he believed that about everyone, not just me. He believed in sort of destiny and he believed that everyone came to him for a reason and that he had something to learn from everyone. Of course, some of the people who went to him were very evil, but that aside, I mean, I think that he was very open to everybody who, who went to him and he talked about that. And we talked about his music. He talked about like various songs. Oh my gosh. It was, I mean, it was a really long conversation and it was, it was very magical. It was beautiful. It just kind of flowed beginning to end and up to then probably the most amazing experience of my life. <laughs> I think I think he was less shy too because he was on the phone mm -hmm. and you know he was always a little bit self-conscious mm -hmm. about his appearance so I think when he was on the phone he lost that shyness mm -hmm. even more and just like so opened up and yeah it was it was incredible yeah wow so at this point you know I think it's pretty fair to say that you were really shaping your life around Michael so you were renting apartments you know wherever he was living you were spending a long long periods of time waiting along roadsides quite often by yourself for many hours how did that level of dedication affect the other aspects of your life did you feel like you had to give up anything how did that work for you and how did you make it work with your job and all those other details Right. Yeah. I mean, people have definitely asked me, like, if I had to make sacrifices to follow my dream. And I'm like, what? Sacrifices? No, I don't think I would have seen anything as a sacrifice. Like, I was so focused on, you know, this one dream and this goal and going to see Michael if and when possible, you know. So I kind of built my life around that. Like, I remember when I was 17, um, trying to decide if I wanted to be a writer or an actress. And I thought, mm, if I become an actress, I'm going to be tied to these projects, like be it a TV show or a stage performance. Like, I can't just take off whenever I want to. Whereas if I'm a writer, I can go wherever I want. And like, if Michael's somewhere, I can just go. And like, I mean, that ended up being very true. And by the time I was living in the US, I was a freelance writer. So I was my own boss. I could work anywhere as long as I had a laptop and a phone. I could mm -hmm. work absolutely anywhere, including sitting in my car outside Michael's house, <laughs> where, you know, if you want to be anywhere in the world, like, you know, why go to a coffee shop when you can be sitting outside Michael's house on his invitation, by the way, he didn't invite me to be there. And even though I didn't really believe him initially, he like convinced me, no, he really wants me to be there. So it worked for both of us. As strange as it might seem to other people, it's like it made him happy to have me 
there. Obviously, it made me happy. And it was a very gentle arrangement. Like, I could just hang out there. And if he had time and wanted to see me, I was there. And if he didn't have time, that was fine. I didn't care. I'd still rather be there than anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. So it was just like a perfect kind of arrangement. I mean, did it interfere with my life? No, not at all. Like, I just, I had built my life in a way that I was a very much a free agent. I could go anywhere and do anything. Sure, I had friends who were like, what are you doing? Why are you like wasting <laughs> your time and money on this? Like, they didn't get it. They thought it was, there was a means to the end, uh, to an end. Like, I was going to see Michael because I wanted to marry him and have his babies or something. It was like, no, it's the joy of just being there. And people can't really understand that. And, you know, hopefully if they read my book, they'll understand a little bit better. Like it purely was just for the joy and love of being there. That's it. You know, there was no ulterior motive. But by the time I got to L.A., my friends were totally cool. Like, I don't know, maybe it's the L.A. mentality, but people are like, just follow your joy. Like, mm -hmm. just if it makes you happy, it makes him happy. Like, just go for it. Enjoy it. Don't question it. Mm -hmm. So I I think I'd matured a lot as well by then. And I was just like, this is who I am. And like, this is what I'm doing. And if anyone has a problem with it, that's their problem, you know? And so kind of like embraced my path. I would say I had embraced my path at that point. So right. yeah, things just worked out for me. You know, going back to that wave of good fortune, like yeah. things just worked out so perfectly for me. And when Michael said, like, I was meant to be there, I kind of agree. Like, yeah, it was meant somehow. I don't know why. I don't know why. And I'm very humbled by it. And I feel I'm overwhelmed by it to this day and very privileged. But yeah, I do feel like it sort of was my path to, mm -hmm. to do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to also talk about the dynamics of the fan community at this time with all this personal contact you were having with Michael Jackson. He's recognizing you. He's calling you on the phone. Did you get any pushback from people within the fan community about this kind of personalized treatment? Not to my face, you know. I mean, in 07, there were like three of us, you know. Nobody knew about the house except me, and I told a couple of people. So it was only us. It was me and a few friends. So obviously, there was no problem there. 08, the house was a little more known about, the one in Vegas. But it was only like a few like prolific followers coming from Europe. And then like there was about a handful of local Vegas fans who would come by now and again. Everyone was super sweet. It was all harmonious. It was lovely. No one had a problem with me. Again, at least to my face, no one had a problem with me. So I don't think they really did. In L.A., I, L.A. was like nerve-wracking for me because that's where he moved to in late 08. And that was very much known about. So it was kind of high profile where he was at various times, first the Bel Air and then his home in Carlwood. And so when I first went there, I thought, oh, no, these are all new people. Like, are they going to have a problem with me? Because by that point, I was very aware that online people were having conversations about me. It kind of started in March 07 when there were these paparazzi pictures of Michael and me taken. And they went online immediately. And everyone was like, who is this? And what's she doing there? You know, and the thing is, I, know, I remember reading because my, my I was never on fan forums just because by the time they blew up, I already had like fan friends in real life so I never really participated but some of my friends did and so they would send me links to this chatter about me which was really strange for me I'd always been such a private person and to suddenly have like that kind of public persona I was like very uncomfortable but anyway they would send me these links and I remember reading one where people were like oh I think it's just like the daughter of an associate you know and everyone was fine with that but as soon as people realized I was a fan it was like they were offended by me being there like what is she doing there and like immediately rushed to judge you know that like I was stalking him I was sleeping with his bodyguards to get close to him and saying stuff like this which obviously wasn't true I was quite hurtful but you know after a while I was like I'm just gonna stop reading this like why am I doing this to myself I don't need to read it it doesn't exist in my real life you know and I, 
honestly just like set it aside and just went on doing my thing and getting swept up in the experience I was actually having. So mm-hmm. I tried to just like put that aside. But I was I was really afraid in LA that it would come to me in person, that I would like have this hostility. Mm. But thankfully the LA fans were just like the sweetest people in the world. So oh, good. I think it's interesting that it was fine when you were an, a, an associate's daughter, but not when you were a fan. <laughs> no, it was not allowed. You know? <laughs> Can you tell us, you know, just a bit more about what was it really like being there on a daily basis, kind of waiting outside his house? You mentioned, you know, it was totally comfortable. You could do work, just kind of wait there for him to pass by. Is there anything else kind of particular to that moment when he was still living in Las Vegas that is special to your fan experience that other other fans might not think of that you'd like to share? Any little stories? Oh, like things that happened or? I just want to get a little bit more of a glimpse into kind of what it was like spending so much time outside his house waiting for him to to come by and how those dynamics worked a little bit. Okay. Well, initially I was all alone in in 07 and oh my God, it's so boring. (laughs) I mean, I tried to keep myself busy, like I would work and then maybe I'd read something and listen to music, obviously his music, you know, but yeah, it could get really boring. And I think that that's something that people don't realize, like looking back on my fan experience or other fan followers experience it's like the amount of waiting around and you really had to want to be there because you would get bored. Obviously, anybody would. And I remember like, especially when I was at, at Neverland, fans would come by and sometimes they would have driven from far away and they would come by and they would sit at the gates for 15 minutes and then leave because they were bored. And I was like, what? I don't get it. You know, <laughs> obviously, they just didn't want to be there as much as we did. Um, so it was a lot of waiting. Then I did tell some friends because like, I just, I wanted their company and I, they asked me and I just couldn't not tell them like where he was. So I told them and they, they would come along. That was way better. That was way more fun. Like we would hang out and just chat a lot, obviously write him letters and we would do little group things for him as well. Like make, you know, letters together or make little gifts for him. So it was always like trying to find new ways to express our love for him and not only on our own behalf but on behalf of our friends like we would gather letters from our friends in Europe as well and just trying to make him feel as loved as possible like that was always the goal to just deliver this wave of love to him whenever we saw him and he he would talk about that too about like that's what it's all about for him like coming out and just feeling that love and he just sort of I think he he fed or he did feed off that um and I think that was you know everything he put out into the world from when he was a child like all of the music and the beauty and the art he put out into the world and I think we were the ones who were sort of bringing that back to him and saying look we received you we received you and this is what that experience was and this is this is the love that we felt from you even from afar so Mm -hmm. it was just this always this beautiful interaction this back and forth with with each side trying to express our love like he was always like I love you more I love you more and we were like no 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 we love you more and and then we would go away and write these really expressive letters and he would go and write these really expressive beautiful letters which I'm sure fans have seen online you know Mm -hmm. some of them are online or some of them are in my book Mm -hmm. um so it was always like this back and forth just passing back and forth this this love and this expression and that's really what it was all about yeah absolutely I think that's wonderful um you also got to know Michael's kids especially Paris during this time. Can you speak a bit to that and also what Michael was like as a dad? Sure. Yeah. So this was really more 08, 07. I had a few experiences with the kids um, and I had seen them also uh, at Neverland in 2003, but, and a few times in New York. So kind of here and there over the years, but it was really 08 when I started to interact more with the children. And Michael was an amazing father. You know, I, I learned a lot about 
their lives and um, how they were being brought up. And it was just so beautiful. Like he just created this very gentle atmosphere around them, full of art and creativity and play and music. It was very nurturing. They had minimal screen time. You know, they were allowed online only on children's websites under supervision. And then they would watch movies together as a family. They would go to the Palms movie theater most weekends. And uh, it was just such a beautiful like storybook kind of childhood. And the relationship with between them and Michael was so beautiful. You know, he would come out and like roll the window down the SUV and just this this burst of joy would spill out, you know, mm-hmm. they were just so happy and, and so beautiful as children, just so well brought up, so polite, so well mannered. And at the same time, they were kids and they were roguish and they were, you know, full of life and spirit and they were absolutely captivating. I remember one time in 08, Waldo, again, Justin, <laughs> to us, Waldo to Michael, um, was over from England and so it was just him and me and Michael and the children. We were all chatting together and Justin spent all the time talking to Michael and I spent all of the time talking to the children and Justin couldn't believe it. And he started teasing Michael saying, oh, Michael, Talitha is ignoring you. And like Michael was just laughing, you know. And then afterwards, Justin was like, he couldn't believe it. He said he was laughing because he just never seen that before in his life, like a fan being with Michael and not giving him their undivided attention. And I think that really speaks to how captivating those children were, that they were the only people in the world that could draw my my attention away from Michael because there really was something magical to them. Like there was some of Michael's magic in those children for sure. You know, you could tell that they were his and they, they just glowed with that same sparkly magic mm-hmm. yeah that yeah. he did so they were really beautiful and he also um he talked to me about his fears for them you know he tried so hard to protect them from the harshness of the world including in relation to him I remember him saying on during our phone call which I do relay in the book mm-hmm. that when they were younger Grace would try to show them tabloids I think to just like get them used to that you know but he didn't want them to see the tabloids he said I want them to learn who I am from you and from people like you so he wanted he wanted the children to learn who he was through through his fans because we knew who he was you know and I think that's a real compliment to the fans too that we he felt like we really knew him mm-hmm. you know we really understood him we received him we mm-hmm. got who he was and so he wanted the children to experience that and I think that's why probably like he encouraged an interaction between the children and me you know Mm -hmm. but he also talked about his fears for them as they were growing up he knew that he couldn't protect them to that extent forever they were getting older he said you know he'd have to leave it up to them soon whether to wear uh, face coverings in public or not and uh, you know that scared him yeah Um, and uh, and he wanted for them what every parent wants which is just for them to be happy find their own path in life you know find true love and that's definitely my wish for them as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's an interesting compliment to your book. Another book that's come out recently is Eileen Madala's book about being the kid's homeschool teacher, which is also kind of fascinating because she was teaching kind of during that gap when you weren't seeing Michael. So it was like the Bahrain, Ireland years. <laughs> so it's kind of right. interesting seeing her insights with the kids as well during during those moments, which I always find it so ironic that Michael went and lived in Ireland and you had come to the United States. And I feel like you guys were supposed to be in Ireland together at some point, but it didn't happen. I don't know. It's so funny because I'm like obsessed with LA and he was obsessed with Ireland. And, you know, not that he's from LA, but, you know, he spent a lot of his life in LA and like, obviously I was from Ireland. So it's, (laughs) it was a funny thing. And he didn't like LA at all, by the way. Mm. He didn't like it at all. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't like the industry people and 
just the way it like bigged people up and then tore them down. And he yeah. said, you know, he'd be in LA for, for industry reasons, but I, he never would have lived here out of choice. And for me, it's like the, you know, it's paradise. So. <laughs> well, thinking back, he probably would have been perhaps better off staying in Ireland or Vegas, who knows, but yeah, I know. all we can do is, is I guess, imagine what would have happened there. Yeah. So we have officially moved into 2008. So actually at this point, I want to invite Talene back on the show. She's been very patiently waiting in the corner because this is where Talene really, you know, becomes a big part of the story as well. So um, hello, Talene. Thank you for (laughs) sitting quietly. We're happy to hear your voice again. So at this point in your fan journey, Talitha, um, and also in Michael Jackson's life, you know, we're reaching a tough time for all fans. So this is when Michael did move back to LA. This is at the end of 2008. And he was living in the Carrollwood Drive house for the last several months of his life. At this point, he was seeing doctors quite frequently. And both of you were often able to meet him before or after those appointments. So looking back now, how would you assess his health and overall state of being at this stage in those early months of 2009 and through that spring? Did you start to have any concerns at that point. Sure. So, um, yeah, Michael started going to the doctors um, soon after he moved to Los Angeles, which was in late 2008. And he went to uh, Dr. Klein's office in Beverly Hills. And initially it was just a visit here and there. And then the visits became more frequent and they became much longer, often taking like three, four five hours. Did we worry? Yes, we worried because he would sometimes emerge in a slightly groggy state which, you know, suggested he had been under sedation. At the same time, we were like, well, he's coming out of a doctor's office. Obviously, he's going through a procedure that requires sedation. So we weren't overly worried. Like, it's kind of none of our business what was going on in there. Obviously, it's his private medical business. So, you know, my initial worry had been following the announcement of the tour when suddenly the concerts went from 30 to 50 And I thought, that's weird. That's not what he ever discussed wanting to do. Like, I hope this is what he wants and he's not being pressured into it. But when I saw Michael, actually the very next day, the day after the 50 concerts were announced, he seemed absolutely fine. I got to chat with him quite a bit and he seemed really happy and excited. So that worry quickly subsided. And beyond that, no, there was no reason to worry. As I said, even with the sedation, it was understandable. So there was no indication that there was anything wrong with Michael during the first months of 2009. No, I agree. Yeah, I, I don't think there was any concerns of of the doctor's visits in the earlier months of 09. And then speaking of this is it. So most fans are, of course, aware that Michael never really intended the this is it concerts to balloon to 50 shows, um, as we've talked about. You say that you feel like G- Michael was genuinely excited about things coming up. So you really do you think he would have embraced doing that original smaller number of shows? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he had talked about touring several times in um, 07, certainly in 08. I know he talked about it a lot, um, about touring again. But he said specifically to me, I do not want to do the tours on the scale of those of the past, like Bad, Dangerous, and History, where you're talking like 50, 80 concerts or even more. He said, I'll never do that again because now it's different. Like, I'm older, I have children, you know, I really don't want to do that. And he said he wanted to do a series of exclusive shows in cities around the world. So a few in London, a few in New York, Tokyo, Sydney, and so on. That's what he talked about very consistently throughout those years. And then actually in 08, it was either September, October, 
um, he he told us he'd come from a meeting about a tour. So he was obviously planning the tour even in Vegas. I'm sure that's the reason he moved to LA. Um, I think he was very excited. I think that the initial plan was for him to do 10 concerts in London and then 10 in maybe New York or and maybe somewhere in China, Japan, and so on. I think that's what he wanted to do. And everything just spiraled out of control. And he lost complete control of the tour. And it went from 10 to 30 to 50. And that's absolutely not what he wanted. We all know that now. And it it does seem that he must have gotten roped into that expansion pretty quickly, because I know that he was always telling a lot of the fans that it was 10 shows. But my understanding has always been that the first contract he signed was for 31 concerts, which then went to 50. So it's interesting to think about how quickly everything exploded into something much bigger than he wanted from the start. Right. And that wouldn't have been the first time that things, very big things relating to Michael were happening without Michael's knowledge or consent. For example, the Neverland exhibition, which was Mm -hmm. on in April in Los Angeles, and the whole world knew about it. Certainly the whole fan world knew about it. So what were we, we were being told at that point was that the auction, which originally all of his Neverland belongings were to be auctioned off. So we were told the auction was canceled, but the exhibition was going ahead because Michael wanted the fans to come and see all of his things. So we were like, okay, cool. You know, so my friends and I all went to the exhibition here in LA thinking, great. And maybe even Michael might turn up, who knows? And then on the last day of the exhibition, my, one of my friends and I talked to Michael about it and asked him if he was going to go and he was like what exhibition he didn't even know it was happening Mm -hmm. and he was very upset Mm -hmm. he was very angry that it was going on so that's how things could just spiral out of control and Michael was wouldn't even be aware of it and the whole world would know so probably the whole world knew that it was going to be 30 concerts and then that it was going to be 50 concerts before Michael did right so when did you fully realize how unhappy he was with the expansion of the concerts I didn't realize anything was wrong or that he was unhappy in any way until May 29, 2009. He invited a small group of us into a studio um, in Center Staging in Burbank. And he, uh, we all lined up and he talked to us and he expressed his unhappiness for the very first time with the tour schedule. He said he wasn't happy with that. He said, I'm only one man which to this day, that one statement, I think, speaks volumes. You know, it just says it all. He had felt like he had the weight of the world on his shoulders and he wasn't in control. He wasn't in control of the tour. He wasn't happy with the tour. And I remember his his voice wavering as he spoke to us. And it was very upsetting. And, you know, like I said, it was the very first time that I knew that he had any problem with the tour schedule or with the tour in any way. That was also the day that he expressed the the seating was done without his consent and without his agreement where he did there was no pit in the front that fans could gather and really get that concert feeling it was um, it was seats and sold at expensive prices by ticket what are they called oh ticket touts ticket touts like ticket resale yeah. agencies, like via GoGo. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. the the ticket resale agencies were selling those front row seats. So he knew that the fans had no access to to really get there. And that was another thing that was done out of his control. And yeah, I totally agree with Talitha. That was the first time that any kind of red flags or alarms went off as to Michael be, not being happy with the th- things with the way things were turning out with these concerts. That was May 29th. You were both starting to see these signs as you've talked about that perhaps not everything was 
was well. But you were also trusting in Michael, which is completely understandable. I think most of us would have been in that same boat with you. So Talitha, you write in your book that on June 16th, 2009, that was a real turning point for you when you realized how bad things had truly gotten for Michael. So I know we're getting into some difficult territory here, but can you talk to us about what was going on at that moment that really changed your understanding of his situation? Right. Yeah, that was definitely a pivotal point. Up until then, obviously, since May 29th, we'd known that Michael wasn't entirely happy with the tour. As a result of that, we expressed to him in letters our support and a reminder that this was his tour. And if he wasn't happy, like people had to give in to his will because this was his tour. He was Michael Jackson. So we're just kind of reminding him like he was the person with the power here and he needed to use this power to make things right. And I would, I, I told him on May 29th when he invited us all in, I explicitly said, if you don't want to do all the shows, just cancel them. Obviously, you know, and I, I reiterated this in letters. I was like, just do what you want to do. And, you know, if you're not happy with the schedule, they need to change the schedule so that you're happy with it. Like, this again, you're Michael Jackson, you know? So, um, unfortunately, after May 29th, we had very limited access in comparison to the previous months when we would meet him here, there, and everywhere and just, like, make frivolous conversation, you know, because we just meeting him so many times. It was like, okay, what are we going to talk about? And now we were at a point where we were being largely shut out with very little access, um, just, you know, a few seconds here and there. So I couldn't really check in with him to the same extent that I would have been able to do in earlier months. And it was just about writing letters, mostly. On June 16th, Michael Amir told one of my friends, who goes by Robert in my book, that Michael wasn't sleeping properly, that he was suffering from insomnia. That was the first I heard that he was actually suffering in any way, like physically and psychologically as a result of the tour. That evening then, my friend had left, he'd gone back to England, and I talked to Michael very briefly outside Carrollwood on his return from the forum. And I told him that my friend had left, I'd relayed a message from my friend to Michael, and Michael just like was staring at me and not really understanding what I was saying. He kept repeating my words back to me, and he just seemed really incoherent, and I couldn't understand why. If he'd been like this coming out of the doctor's office, I would have thought like, oh, he's sedated, but I didn't understand why he was being so incoherent. Now I understand he was probably going through a lupus fog, it's called. It's when he was probably going through a lupus flare-up, which causes this kind of state of incoherency, which is a state that's brought on by severe stress and by insomnia. So I understand it now. At the time, I just didn't know what was what was going on, I, and I was so worried, and I remember turning to my friends after Michael went inside and my first words to them were what's wrong with Michael because it was such a departure from the Michael I had known for years and I'd been around so much you know over the previous years in particular like it was you know you know someone that well you're that familiar with them you know instantly when something is wrong and that's how it felt that night something is very wrong. So we all huddled with uh, scenarios of what could be happening and some extremes of their they're making him do this against his will. They're drugging him. What's what's happening behind closed doors? What could we do? Right. And we were just kind of in this state of limbo for a while because we didn't know what was happening. So we didn't really know what to do about it, you know, and we didn't want to cross a line either. If it was some kind of health issue that we were not privy to the, the facts about, then we wanted to respect his privacy at the same time. So we honestly were in such like a mess of confusion 
during those those following days. And Talitha mentions um, in the book that some of the reasons why we we couldn't have access to Michael the way we had for months before was uh, could have been because the the meeting we had on May 29th where he shared his concerns that got that leaked through unintentionally, you know, a fan, we think a fan shared with a friend and then that friend shared with someone else and then it made it to what paper was it again? A British tabloid of all things. It was a mm. British tabloid of all things. And so because of that, we think the concert promoters were keeping us from having access to Michael the way we did and, and pre- trying to prevent that that contact that we had with him previously to make sure that Michael doesn't vent to us anymore. Mm-hmm. Because for sure, they wouldn't have wanted someone telling him, hey, just cancel the shows if you don't want to do them. They wouldn't have wanted people telling them, oh, the venue is all seated. So now they've got to like go and rip up those seats, which he never would have realized otherwise until he went on stage during the opening concert. You know, they didn't want people telling him that tickets with a face value of whatever it was, 85 pounds, were selling for hundreds, even thousands of pounds, you know, so that none of his major fans were going to be in the front rows. It was going to be like wealthy elite Mm -hmm. people, you know, Mm -hmm. from high society in London. Like it wasn't going to be his mega fans. So yeah, he didn't want anyone telling they didn't want anyone telling Michael all of this because it made things more difficult for them. Well, and their their concern was their money, their revenue, and mm-hmm. it our concern was Michael and Michael's well-being and yeah. Michael's wishes and what he wanted and the, and that kind of conflict what the concert promoter's focus was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking to that May date just for another moment, what did did Michael respond? What did he say when you said, why don't you cancel the, the show if it's not going to work for you? So I actually, I relay the conversation word for word in the book in its entirety, which I don't often do, like an entire conversation, but I actually do in that case. And I believe he said something like, oh, thank you. You're so sweet. You know, he, he, <laughs> he didn't say whether he's going to cancel the shows or not. I mean, I'm sure that was, would have been a very difficult thing to do, but The main thing was for us to say, like, we got you, like, whatever you want to do, that's cool with us. You do you, you know, you do whatever was going to make you happy. And this is your tour. And I didn't get the feeling during that conversation that that's a message he was being told by people around him every day. So that was the first time I kind of realized, oh, we need to tell him this. We need to remind him. And I, I think the same goes for everyone else who was there. Right. Yeah, I mean, he always said he would do these things for us, for the fans. And mm-hmm. for the fans, the the number one priority was him and his happiness. Yeah, and his health. Yeah. And I want to emphasize that following this, your group of, of fans, you really took real concrete steps to try and get the word out about your concerns. And in fact, you guys wrote an open letter that you were going to try to get to Michael's friends, including people like Elizabeth Taylor. And um, I find it so powerful. I would actually love to read that complete open letter, which was jointly written, I realized, by a group of you and which is included in its entirety in the book, if that would be okay with you both. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. So this is the open letter that you wrote as a group to convey your concern for Michael at this critical time. And I'll be reading this in full. A message about Michael Jackson's current health. To all concerned, you are receiving this letter because you are someone who works with Michael Jackson or who knows him on a personal basis. 
This is a letter written on behalf of many of Michael's fans, including the group living in and visiting Los Angeles who have had contact with Michael over the past half a year. To get straight to the point, we are gravely concerned about Michael's physical condition and how it appears to have worsened over recent months. With him about to undertake a grueling 50-date concert tour, we felt we could no longer be silent and that it was time to express our worries to him and to everyone in his close circle of friends, family, staff, and colleagues. What we have witnessed is a shockingly underweight man who appears to be in trouble physically and emotionally, and who is single-handedly carrying a huge burden on his shoulders, a burden he has spoken out about. We are not privy to information about his personal health or medical conditions, and we understand we may be misinformed or unaware of certain details. We respect Michael's right to privacy, and we do not wish to invade it. But the fact is that we believe Michael's health is at risk and that he may need some help, possibly professional help from a doctor. Whether the weight loss is the problem or whether it is a symptom of another condition, we strongly feel that it must be confronted and treated without delay. If you, for even a moment, have had a concern about Michael's current condition, then we beg you to do whatever you can to help him, support him, encourage him, reassure him. If you are in a position to act and you see what is going on, then you can't in good conscience ignore what you see. You are involved. Even as fans, we have struggled with this, talked ourselves out of this, been in denial of it. But we've now seen too much and can no longer stand back and stay silent. We may be crossing a line, but we are willing to do so because Michael's health and happiness matters to us more than anything else. Remember, we are in a position where financial and professional gain is not a factor. Our motivation is simply love. We are strongly dedicated and loyal to Michael, and our support for him is unwavering. But we cannot support a tour that will damage his health, possibly worse. We are turning to you now because you may be our best hope, our only hope. We feel frustrated to see this situation unfolding. We feel helpless because we are on the outside, and we feel terrified of the outcome if nobody steps up to help. Please don't turn your back. We are willing to risk our reputations and our good standing with the man who matters most to us. We pray you are willing to take a risk for him also. He said it to us himself a few weeks ago. He is only one man, and he probably could use some support and assistance right now. If you agree there's an issue with Michael's health, please ask yourself what is the right thing to do and do it. We are relying on you for Michael's sake. So that is an incredibly powerful letter. Yeah. Can you speak to how that letter came about, the writing of it, just some more details around around that moment? Right. So this is all now occurring in the very last days before the end. So on June 21st, I think we got an email from a French fan who had visited Michael um, along with a friend a couple of weeks earlier in a studio and she'd given him a jacket that they'd made and he went to take off the jacket he was wearing and put on their jacket and she was shocked by how skinny he was. I mean, Michael had always been really skinny, you know, that was his just natural default. But Definitely since the trial, he lost a lot of weight during that time that he never regained. And then in 09, I guess he was getting thinner, but I didn't really notice myself because when you see someone every day, you don't notice it as much. Plus, he always wore, as she said in her email to us, he always wore like these bulky jackets, you know, baggy trousers. So we didn't really get to see how thin he was. But when she saw how thin he really was, she was shocked. 
And so she reached out to Karen Fay, his makeup artist and um, long-term friend who was working on This Is It, confirmed that he wasn't doing well. So at that point, this French fan, Marika, reached out to all of us in LA and explained what she had observed and explained Karen Fay's confirmation that he wasn't doing well. And Karen Fay had said she was doing everything in her power to help him. But at this point, we needed to do something as well. And now we finally knew he really is not doing well. Like, And this is directly relating to the tour as far as we can see, as far as we can make out. So we need, we need to do something. What should we do? So I wrote back and I said, hey, why don't everybody on this? Because it was about mm, maybe 50 fans on the email list, all like fan followers. I said, hey, why, if everybody wants to, why don't you write a letter and just express your concerns? Like, we need to make it crystal clear to Michael that as much as we adore him as a performer and an artist, as excited as we are about the shows, like, we, want, we need him to put his health first. So um, I invited everyone to write a letter and then send it to me or another friend in L.A. and that we would deliver those letters into his hands. And so this was, like I said, I, I believe the email was the 21st. I hope I'm getting that date right. And then so the letters started flooding in that day and the next day. And the next time I saw Michael was uh, June 23rd. That's the next time he came out to go anywhere. But it was too chaotic to give him the letters on that day. So I ended up giving them on the following day as well. Yeah. So that's, oh, and then, all oh, right. Yeah. So we, we thought we were going to do the letters. And then we made it kind of like a plan. We're like, let's do the letters first, get them into Michael's hands. And then depending on what he says, we're going to distribute this statement to everyone around him. So our plan was first to approach Michael and then depending on his response, possibly hand these statements to everyone we could, everyone involved in this is it, that we could approach, um, the people going into his house. So his employees, his associates, we would go to Encino and give a copy in there for the family. We would go to Elizabeth Taylor's house in Bel Air hand in a copy for her. So basically anyone we knew who was in any way involved in Michael's circle would end up getting a copy of the statement because we were feeling very desperate at this point. Like we had very little access ourselves. So we're like, if we can't reach in and help him, maybe these people can and we need to just give them a push to do that. So obviously it's very emotional hearing that letter being read out. In retrospect, I wish I could go back in time and hand it out immediately to everybody around him. But we respected Michael so much. We respected his privacy and we wanted to go to him first. You know, that was really important to us. We didn't want to do anything to embarrass him or expose him or humiliate him. God knows he'd gone through enough already. Like, and we were never going to be a cause of suffering for him if we could at all avoid it. So we thought that the first thing was to go to him directly and then just go from there. And all of this just happened in just a few days, in the very last days. And in addition, of course, to the group letter, there are, you know, all these testimonials as well, all these individual letters, which are still available to read online. And we will be putting a link to in the show notes so you can read those to yourself, as well as this really powerful open letter, which is in Talitha's book. Talitha and Talene, let's take one more quick break to talk about the MJ Cast shop. So here at the podcast, we work very hard to put out quality content for our listeners. And one question we get asked frequently is how our listeners can help support us, which we so appreciate. One easy and fun way to do that is by going to the MJCast.com slash shop. 
Here you will find all kinds of great designs that can celebrate your love of Michael Jackson and support the podcast at the same time. You'll find t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, phone cases, prints and artworks, tote bags, notebooks, you name it, it's there. And on any of these products, you can pick one of our awesome designs, all created by Jamin Bull, the one and only, my fellow podcaster. Some of these designs include our classic logo, which has a beautiful sunset on it. Also, we have some great text designs, such as Michael Jackson's albums, the Jackson Brothers names, or my personal favorite, the Captain EO characters. And there's also some really great original art, again, created by Jamin, such as the Pixel Tour. You'll have to check it out because I think it's pretty amazing. All proceeds from purchases from the shop go to show running costs, equipment purchases, and regular charity donations. You can help promote the MJCast and Michael Jackson at the same time at themjcast.com slash shop. And if you do purchase something, be sure to share your pick with us and we would love to feature you on our social media page. Thank you to all our listeners who have already purchased from our merch shop and be sure to check it out. Thanks again. Now, with all of this in mind and kind of getting down to these really difficult last moments, you had going through the kind of seeing this tough stuff, but you also had this absolute high of getting to actually see Michael rehearse for This Is It, uh, what would end up being literally hours before he would no longer be with us, which must have been just amazing to hear that going on. It was that very night that you did, in fact, you tried to get this message to him directly. You've told us a little bit of the earlier trying to get him some of your concerns, but would one of you, whoever's most comfortable, be willing to really walk us through that final night on June 24th? Right. So, um, yeah, I'm happy to start and go as far as I can with that. So like I said, on the 23rd, we didn't get a chance to give the letters to Michael because it was so chaotic. And in in those days, it was more autograph hunters than ever before, hanging out at the house, more paparazzi, and just more kind of casual fans that were coming along just to see him. So we we came out that day. Sorry to jump in. And we, we were not, no longer allowed to hand stuff to Michael directly everything got handed into the driver or one of the security and things. We had no access to him whatsoever. Yeah. Although on the 23rd, I did manage to, I always managed to slip through maybe like being (laughs) very tiny helped in that way. But I think I always managed to slip through and like make it to Michael somehow. But I did have a moment with him, but I, he was trying to talk to me on the 23rd and I couldn't hear what he was saying. It was so frustrating because, Mm. you know, after all these months of meeting him all this time, like I had private visits with him and so much access. And then suddenly when it actually really mattered, I couldn't even hear what he was saying to me because it was so chaotic around us. So on the 24th, it was Jill and I had another fan, Jill, um, had and I had been elected to hand the letters to Michael. So, you know, that was obviously a responsibility we took very seriously and we wanted to do it very well and as soon as possible because we knew he was going to leave for London in, you know, a couple of weeks. So we were like, right, what are we going to do? Because it's not going to happen on, the, on this day either. He's going to come out. It's going to be crazy again. The previous evening, he'd gone to the Staples Center for the first time to rehearse. But when he'd got there, he'd just driven straight in. When he'd come out, he'd just driven straight out and got back to the house, driven straight in again. We'd had like really no access to him whatsoever, no moment with him. So we're like, okay, the same thing's probably going to happen. So what are we going to do? We need a plan. So we came up with this plan where Jill and I would go ahead to the Staples Center under the assumption that he was going to go there again. We would wait 
at the entrance where he'd gone in the previous evening, the entrance to the garage. And when he came, we hoped that he would stop and that we would get to give him the letters. But this plan was contingent on a few things. One was that he would go to the Staples Center again. And the other was that the other fans wouldn't approach because we thought if everybody runs towards the car, which would be the the norm, then security are probably just going to rush him straight in. They'll tell him like, oh, it's too many people. They might tell him they're paparazzi, you know, whereas if it's just the two of us, they can't do anything like that. So we approached the other fans who were there and we asked each one of them, would they mind doing this for us so we could give the letters? And every single person said, of course. And I just, I cannot overestimate the selflessness of that action because, you know, every one of us treasured every moment and every opportunity to interact with Michael, no matter how brief. And so to give up that opportunity was just, like I said, a hugely selfless act made all the more so by the significance that evening would soon take on. It was literally the last opportunity for any fan to talk to Michael, Mm -hmm. which of course we didn't realize it at the time, but even so it was incredibly selfless. So everyone gave their agreement, gave their consent. Jill and I went ahead to the Staples Center. We uh, positioned ourselves by the entrance to the garage. When Michael left the house, our friends called us and they told us he was on his way and they updated us every step of the way. Like, okay, he's going in the same direction. I think he's going to the Staples Center. He's on the freeway. He's getting off the freeway. He's going to be there any moment. And sure enough, the um, two Escalades, um, which is Cadillac Escalades that he would travel in, during that time, came around the corner and approached us. And Michael was in the backseat of the, the one in front. And uh, as it drove towards us, the sun was like streaming inside. And he leaned forward between the two front seats. And the sun just like hit him straight in the face. And he just like lit him up, you know. And we could see him like just staring at us. We kind of waved and like held up the letters to show that we had something to give him. And so he pulled up and the window on the front driver's seat went down. And at that point, we thought it was just Fahim, like in the Escalade. So the three main people around Michael were the driver, Fahim, Alberto, who wasn't there that evening, was a bodyguard, and then Michael Amir, who was his personal assistant. And so I leaned in to hand Michael the letters, only to see sitting in the back seat next to Michael was Michael Amir, which I can't overestimate the weirdness of that situation because I had seen Michael probably hundreds of times in the back of that Escalade, and there had never been anyone beside him in the back except his children there'd never been anyone with him in the back Michael Amir was always in the front seat never in the back and that was that was just incredibly bizarre I don't know the significance of it to this day I mean obviously the fact that it, it occurred then on his final night just I, I I boggles the mind like I just don't know why he was there but anyway he was there so I kind of did a double take when I saw Michael Amir sitting next to him but nonetheless I, I started to hand the letters to Michael directly Michael reached out to take them and Fahim actually went to take them out of my hands. So I pulled them back and I did it a second time. Same thing happened. I retreated again. And on the third occasion, I delivered the letters directly into Michael's hands. That was such a great feeling of relief. And Mm -hmm. then I talked to him about them. I told him there were letters from fans all over the world. They were extremely important that he reads them. And he said he would. I kept repeating it. It was just, that was the only thing I was there to say. Like, please, you have to read them. They're so important. They're from fans all over the world. They're really important. I didn't want to say too much because I was very aware there were other ears listening. And at that point, we did suspect that we were being, we were being uh, shut out because of our influence over Michael. So I didn't say too much. But I just kept reiterating, reiterating the same thing again and again. 
And then I told him that we had a short statement to read him. And the short statement was very similar to the open letter that you just read. And actually, that was the part of the task that Jill was to perform. So I asked Michael, like, is it okay? Can we have a minute just to read your short statement? And he said yes. But then Michael Amir piped up and said, no, we'll do it on the phone instead. And at that, he uh, took his phone out as if to call me right away. And as the Escalades went down into the garage, my phone rang. And I picked it up. It was an unknown number. So I, I knew it was Michael or Michael Amir also had an unknown number. And I picked it up and all I could hear was static. And that happened several more times. And so I never actually got to talk to Michael on the phone. We never got to read him our statement that evening. But at least we got to deliver the letters to him. I'm grateful for that. Yeah. It's really quite heartbreaking. Yeah. On the subject of Michael Amir, looking at that in a little bit more detail, do you have any other thoughts about him specifically in terms of interfering? Do you feel like it was something related to him or just this bigger system that he was in tour mode and they were protecting their asset? Um, Do you have any other insights into that? Um, I mean, I don't really like to speculate too much when I don't know. And the honest fact is, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. I've heard rumors. um, I've heard from people who were involved in This Is It that definitely there was instructions from the powers that be to keep us away from Michael and that Michael Amir specifically had been told to keep us away, as well as Alberto and Fahim. Is that true? I don't I don't know. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe certainly everything changed in those last weeks. It was just so different. And I mean, we were the same group of fans who'd been around for months and were, you know, obviously very gentle with Michael. We were in no way a security threat. You know, I'd been in Michael's home, for God's sake, like, you know, I'd been sitting on the sofa with him and his children. It's hardly a threat. But suddenly they were acting like we were, like we were a security threat needed to be kept away from him. So that was really weird, you know, like why and why then? And, And why to such an extent? Yeah, I mean, their justification and even afterwards, some of us had encounters with some of the main guys like Talita mentioned uh it was Fahim Alberto and Michael Amir that were there from from 08 to 09 and their justification was oh Michael's in concert mode and he was just getting ready for the tour and that's why he wanted to be kind of sheltered and kept away but the way it all unfolded just to this day remains a giant puzzle. It just doesn't make sense. The measurements they were taking to keep us away when even at times it was just a handful or two handfuls of us and majority of those people there were faces that they knew and names that they knew and had seen for months and months. And also Michael Amir did state on the stand at trial that he was sitting in the front that night. Mm. He said that specifically, and Fahim also said that he was sitting at the front. So if I already had suspicions and thought that was really weird and kind of like maybe a little sinister, the fact that like they both lied about it on the stand, I don't think that's something they wouldn't have remembered because it was so unusual. So that makes me even more suspicious. And Mm -hmm. I know we'll never know. And I, like I said, I don't like to speculate or, you know, suggest that there was wrongdoing where there maybe wasn't, maybe there was some kind of innocent explanation, but then why did they lie about it? You know, it just doesn't make sense. And, And to echo what Talitha said, it was so odd him being back there, not just Michael Amir and that particular group of staff, but any guards that we've ever seen throughout I mean, I don't, Talitha, I don't know if you've seen anything like that before, but I've no. never seen any of his guards, staff, assistants, any of those people sit in the back behind him. It's always, no matter what car 
they were driving at the time and who the driver and who the guard or assistant was. It was always in the front seats and Michael alone in the back or his kids with him. Yeah. I mean, even in 07, 08, 09, there wasn't even one point where I saw anybody in the back with him apart from his children and anybody. Throughout the entire trial, which that was more of a security risk than anything else because you had all sorts of people that would be either outside court or outside Neverland. Nothing like that ever happened except that very last night. Yeah. Wow. Well, the whole the whole way you set up the scene of that last night in the book is staggering. And it's hard to read, but I think really important to read. I mean, the moment where we do see Michael Amir in the back seat is just like, it takes your breath away when you're reading it. And so it's even more amazing to hear you guys both talking about it now, also in, especially in given the difference in what they said as their public statement. Oh gosh. Well, I, I do want to kind of look at beyond Michael Amir. I, I want to look at kind of a bigger picture too, in terms of how Michael was maybe being treated by the team at large. Um, I want to reference just briefly a quote from Jermaine Jackson's book, which is, you know, another great one for, for any MJ fan to read to get a lot of insight into what was going on towards the end. And there is this pretty striking moment here where he writes, and this is from Jermaine's book, on one occasion he delivered deliberately spoke into his mic, this being Michael, as he walked off stage, I just want someone to be nice to me today. A voice from the floor yelled back, if we could just have a coherent person here today, they wouldn't speak to me like that if Joseph was here, Michael muttered off mic. And so I'm wondering, first of all, you heard some of the This Is It rehearsals. Did you hear anything whatsoever related to that kind of treatment of him in what you did get to hear? No, absolutely not. I mean, the only thing we heard was the music from This Is It mostly. And then okay, there was an occasion at the forum on the first night when we could hear um, people like shouting instructions, like stage instructions and Michael responding. So we heard that little bit of dialogue. But for the most part, we just heard music. If I had heard anything like that, I would have lost my mind. Quite frankly, I would have lost my mind. I mean, I, that is the last thing I would have imagined that Michael was being mistreated in any way. In my joy and naivety, I thought everyone around Michael pretty much loved him as much as I did and treated him with the same level of respect. Like, I mean, that's what I, I thought, you know, obviously I knew there'd been evil people around him, but I thought they were the exception not the norm. I, th- I thought everyone treated him like the gift that he was and the, the artist that he was and just the exemplary human being that he was. Like, I, I had no idea. I don't know what we would have done. If we'd heard that, I, we could have broken into that venue. And, you know, mm-hmm. we would have been so upset. And for sure, we would have taken immediate action. Oh, yeah. Known in any way that Michael was being mistreated. We had zero awareness of that. And so honestly, I've never heard that before either. I've, I haven't read Jermaine's book and I didn't know. No, me neither. We talk to like that. That's disgusting. That's very upsetting to hear. I agree. Um, well, speaking of, you know, people who were negligent and perhaps much, much worse, you end your book with a condemnation of Conrad Murray, which I really think all fans should read. And you also have a really powerful statement about Michael Jackson's innocence. That whole section is quite amazing. And um, I thank you for writing it. Would you like to speak about Conrad Murray at all and your your feelings on that front in this in this forum? 
well, Conrad Murray was clearly a monster, um, an, a narcissist through and through, who even afterwards took zero responsibility for the horrific act he had committed and tried to blame the victim, Michael, for the crime against him, tried to blame Michael for the homicide that ended his own life. Like, this man is just disgusting, utterly disgusting. And the fact that he's still trying to profiteer from what he did is, you know, beyond sickening and just the, the highest form of evil. So I believe Conrad Murray alone is responsible for what Conrad Murray did. You know, he is the monster that ended Michael's life. Nobody could have predicted that. Nobody could have foreseen it coming. Um, however, I do also believe that other people have blood on their hands. There were people around Michael who could have and should have acted with his best interests at heart, but they were only out for themselves and their own motives. You know, there were people involved in This Is It. I'm talking about the most powerful people involved in the tour who just got carried away with their own ego and were in love with themselves and their own role in the tour and just imagined seeing their own name and lights next to Michael's. And that's all they cared about. And of course, there was the greed factor. They had dollar signs in their eyes and they lost sight completely of Michael's humanity. They cared nothing for him as a human being or as a person. They only saw him as a commodity to further their own goals. And so they treated him as such because how come not one of those people went to Michael and said, hey, what's wrong? Are you not happy? You're not happy? We're going to fix it. What do you need us to fix? What do you need us to change? You want to do less concerts, fewer concerts? That's fine. You want us to postpone some of them? You want us to fix the schedule? You tell us. You're the boss. You're our boss. You're Michael Jackson. How come not one person went to him and said that? You know, and it is my eternal regret that he didn't have somebody around him who had his back and had that position of power, be that a manager or a life partner or his children if they'd been some years older who could have gone in and just put those people in their place, basically, and reminded them who they were dealing with. Because with all due respect, any one of them could have dropped dead and the tour would have gone ahead as planned. Michael was the one singular aspect, the one singular human being in all of this who was indispensable. And he should have been treated as such. He should have been treated with the respect that he deserved. He should have been treated like a human being and not just a thing to be used. So yeah, there are a lot of people with blood in their hands. And you can go all the way back to 93, actually, to Evan Chandler. He's for sure also responsible for what happened because 93 is what led to 2005, mm -hmm. is what led to Michael's confidence being shattered, which then allowed for these corrupt human beings to come in and take advantage of that situation and make him believe that he needed them more than they needed him. And were able to manipulate him into doing these concerts, into doing 50 concerts when he didn't want to do 50. Maybe he wanted to do 30. Personally, I believe he didn't want to do any more than 10 in London. So yeah, they all took advantage of his vulnerability. And it's just sort of like a parade of evil that led to what happened in 2009. Having said that, the act itself, purely Conrad Murray's responsibility. And I hope somehow he suffers the consequences of that because he certainly hasn't so far. Totally agree. Yeah. And, and looking back to 1993, of course, a lot of our listeners have seen the Square One film, which is does exactly what you are referencing here, that it really you know, builds up the case that that was the moment that would be a huge ripple effect through the rest of his life. I completely agree with that. 
Yeah, and also um, I just want to make one point too. Yes, which I talked about, like having an eternal dilemma about Michael's, you know, being Michael and being so open, and that's what allowed all of this to happen in a way. Even though that's not his fault, it's not he's he's not wrong. It's the world that that's wrong. But also another dilemma I have is about whether there should have been cameras in the trial. I know this is a little off point, but I just wanted to put that out there. Like I really believe if there had been cameras recording the entire like broadcasting the entire trial in 2005 it would have been better for Michael in the long run the way we have like footage of the OJ Simpson trial Mm -hmm. I think if we had that footage it would be so powerful especially right now because honestly no one's going to sit and read the transcripts you know but if there were just like video footage of key moments in the trial that would really um, show what was going on there and show how an entire trial could be based on nothing but lies so certainly a documentary like Leaving Neverland could be based on nothing but lies, you know. The, the idea that there's no smoke without fire is actually unfounded. Yeah, well, I think that's a really interesting point. Of course, at the time, you know, Tom Mesereau made the deliberate choice that they didn't want cameras. Yeah, so that's, and that's my dilemma. It's like, yeah. well, obviously Michael didn't want cameras and how could you wish for it to be any more difficult for him than it already was? It was right. horror in itself. But then again, it's like, if there had been cameras, it would be powerful evidence. It, I agree. It's a really good point. Have. Yeah, I actually never quite thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. That documentary was fantastic. I really wish the the director would make a follow-up for for the 2005 trial as well. Yeah, um yeah, Danny Wu is is wonderful and um he's moved on to other subjects at the moment, but perhaps one day he'll come back and do another one. I think that would be great cuz yeah, I, I agree. I was at the opening for Square One in LA and it was just a really special experience to see everybody coming together and celebrating that film and watching it on the big screen for the first time was pretty cool. So I want to take a moment here too, just to tell listeners that the last part of your book, it really does walk through all the aftermath of I mean you know, being at the hospital, waiting to find out what was going to happen. We're not going to walk through that right now because number one, I just know it's probably just so difficult. But of course, you all can read this in the book. And the way, Talitha, that you lay out that whole experience at the very end is just, oh my gosh, it it carries a lot of emotional weight. Again, thank you for putting yourself on the page just so completely and fully. Um, it means a lot to the rest of us to be able to go through that experience with you. It's very powerful. But we won't be talking about that right now. I do want to talk a bit, though, about the aftermath after Michael had passed. For example, how do you feel about the film, This Is It, at this point? Right. Well, initially, when I heard that a documentary was being made, um, literally within days of Michael dying, I was disgusted. I mean, I just couldn't understand how these people who'd worked with him were so quick to get in the studio and kind of recoup their losses. I mean, I could barely breathe. I just couldn't wrap my head around that. These people were just so fast to profiteer over, you know, the most terrific thing to ever happen to, I guess, me personally and so many people I I knew and love. So um, that was really difficult to stomach. And, you know, also the thought that, well, you know, none of these people helped him, but they're so quick to help themselves, you know. So I definitely had a very strong aversion to the whole idea of it initially. But, you know, now I I understand that's not how the world works. And most people are not as destroyed by, you know, Michael's passing as I was. And it was just business as usual, you know, for a lot of people. 
I've never seen This Is It. That's not because I have any moral objection to it necessarily. It's just uh, for the sake of self-preservation. I've not really watched anything or read anything or listened to anything in over a decade. You know, I just haven't been able to do that. So I can't speak for the film itself, but I think it's a good thing that it exists in the world. I think it's good that it's there for fans to at least experience some of what This Is It would have been. And for the general public, they seem to come away with it with um, a new respect for Michael's artistry and his perfectionism. So that's a good thing as well, I guess. Yeah, well, a lot of us did initially celebrate that film, but in light of everything we know now, of course, that was really going on, which you were seeing firsthand, but I think it took a little bit longer for a lot of us to really understand. It is pretty devastating to watch. It's really, um, I mean, it's really done well, and there's bits and pieces of Michael that you see in it. That I'm glad, you know, I'm I too am glad that it was released and the the fans had access to that. When it was released, I, unlike Talitha, went to the theater quite a few times and watched it over and over and over again, just bawled my eyes out. It wasn't so much of a celebratory thing to see it on the screen, but it was more of a Michael's gone. And this is mm-hmm. the only way I can see him now. And so, you know. It was still nice to have that, but hard at the same time. But it was a great film they made. I just wish over the years and over the last decade and in the future, they would release more stuff. I think there's definitely more footage that they have, not just from rehearsals, but throughout other parts of Michael's career that I think the estate or whoever's keeping these footages is is not really releasing and not putting anything else together. I think that that that's kind of a shame. I would love to see not maybe this is it, but kind of a this is it part two called something else. I do want to clarify too. I use the word celebrate, but just for <laughs> total no, 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 I know. clarity there. <laughs> I mean, the music's there, of course. His his magic and his talent is there. You can't help but feel that joy when you watch that. But then mm-hmm. there's also like Michael the person part is there too, and it's yeah. definitely. It's definitely a roller coaster of emotions to watch this is it. Yeah, absolutely. Did you did either of you do anything after Michael passed to get the word out about the reality of those last days? You had been, you know, getting doing these testimony letters, all this. Were you taking action right after he actually passed? I mean, the grief was so crippling and annihilating, you know, I don't initially it was hard to even think but I I know that we posted something in the first day or two just to say we delivered the letters we wanted that to be known there was a forum set up I know that and I participated a little but very very kind of vaguely and briefly I really just didn't have the wherewithal or the clarity to do anything just like just like I said like just breathing was hard enough (laughs) in those first days, weeks, months, years, you know, so not really. I think there were, there was some forum discussions happening, some investigations happening. And then out of that came a, this is not it campaign. I think the testimonies that you referred to earlier on, I think those are a result of this is not it. If I'm not mistaken. Yes, you are actually completely right. Yes. So those Mm -hmm. were, um, and I assume Talitha gave a statement too. <laughs> this was so many years ago. I don't think ago. I no? I okay. don't think I did. I don't think I did. 
But I, uh, but I could be wrong. Yeah, Talitha, I don't think yours is included there, but Talene, I believe yours is. Okay, so that that was part of. I think the efforts were to investigate, to voice what we had seen, to voice what the fans had collectively made efforts to do, to like bring light to that because the majority of the fans didn't know what was happening in those last few days. And as a result of those investigations, the This Is Not It campaign came out and that was to boycott This Is It film, but on a larger scale because it ended his life the way it did. So, and then I violated the This Is Not It campaign by seeing This Is It. (laughs) (laughs) And I just know that those first months were a period of utter confusion. I mean, we didn't know such what a blur. happened. Such a fog. Oh my God, yeah. such a blur. But also we just didn't know. I mean, we'd never heard the name Conrad Murray and we didn't understand what had happened. So there were all these like wild theories running around. And I think despite like hard evidence to the contrary, some of those theories have stuck. And some people are still convinced it was some kind of conspiracy, which I personally don't believe, you know, but that's fine if other people do. I don't believe that, though. I think Conrad Murray killed him, and that's kind of it. But that isn't to say there wasn't mistreatment. Obviously, there was. And, you know, definitely a lot of truth has come out since then. But, like, initially, yeah, we just, we didn't know what had happened. And our first thought had been that he'd collapsed from exhaustion. Like, he'd had a heart attack because he was so underweight, and he wasn't sleeping, he wasn't eating. So that was, like, the first conclusion we jumped to. And then after that, it was, like I said, just utter confusion for a long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So looking back at the past 10 years, and we've touched on this a little bit with This Is It, but how do each of you feel about the estate's overall handling of Michael Jackson's legacy in this past decade? So I'm probably not the best person (laughs) to answer this because I've not seen This Is It. I've never been to a tribute show. I haven't heard the so-called new music. You know, I've basically had to like completely turn away from that world just to cope. So I'm sure there's so much I don't, I know there's so much I don't know. But I do believe the estate from the beginning should have been asking first and foremost, like, what would Michael want and try to figure that out and go from there. I doubt that's what happens. I believe, you know, they've just it's it's about profit. It's about money. I do wish the state had bought Neverland because Michael had said so many times that although he'd never live in Neverland again, he also would never sell it. So the fact that it's now sold is really heartbreaking. It's just the annihilation of another one of his dreams, you know, and that will probably never come true. I don't imagine the owners are going to turn it into any kind of haven for children, which is what he would have wanted. So I wish the estate would have bought Neverland and turned it into that and, and, turned it into something beautiful with you know a charitable purpose that would have reflected Michael's humanitarianism and the spirit of who he was and what he lived for. I also think it's shocking that to this day there's nowhere for fans to go to celebrate Michael. There's not a Michael Jackson museum like seriously. I mean, he's the most important musician to have ever lived. Like he changed the music industry forever. He changed the world. Why is there not a museum to him as an artist, a performer, a humanitarian, and a human being? I don't know why that doesn't exist. As far as I know, there are no plans currently to open a museum. I've also heard that a fan actually tried to open a museum and amassed a huge collection of memorabilia. But then when he approached the estate, they were like, yeah, sure, you can do it, but you'll need to pay us this amount. And it was just then not financially at all possible for this person to do that. And they have to 
to sell their collection. So it's one thing for the estate not to open a museum, but then to block the attempts of fans to do so is worse again. So I am not happy about that, and I don't understand it. Also, when it comes to speaking of Michael's legacy, I think in its purest form, Michael's legacy is perfect because he created it. It's made of all the beauty and art and music that he put into this world, and it's untouchable. And he doesn't need the help of us mere mortals to sustain that legacy. It's done. You know, he did that himself. <laughs> On the other hand, the one threat to Michael's legacy are all of the lies attached to his name, the really disgusting lies, the disgusting documentary that is Living Neverland, the allegations that persist to this day even though he went to trial and was vindicated on all charges. And so I hope that the estate, with all of its might and money, is doing everything within its power to clear his name, because that's, that's, that should also be their number one priority. Absolutely. I agree. Talene, did you have anything to add? I think Talitha pretty much covered it all. But yeah, the estate feels like they're more policing rights than they're focused on doing something for the fans, doing something for his legacy. I mean, like Talitha said, there's nowhere for fans to gather. I think the gathering point is at Forest Lawn, which is a shame. I mean, it's fine to go uh, visit there and pay respects, but there should be another place for fans to gather and to to celebrate him and to remember him. Yeah, that is kind of the only place to hang out right now. I, a few months ago, I just spent hours sitting there <laughs> because there's nowhere else to go. I mean, you can go to the gates of Neverland, which, you know, some of us have spent <laughs> hundreds, possibly thousands of hours at. You could you could still do that even though the ownership has changed. And I love the the last episode or one of the recent episodes you guys did where you clearly broke down the change of ownership of Neverland and what could mm-hmm. and could not be. And I, I love that. That was a great detailed explanation of what's possible <laughs> in you. the zoning. And, you know, true that they can't open a Graceland type of a place at Neverland, but they could open something similar somewhere else. I agree. I think some kind of museum, perhaps somewhere else, could have real potential. And we just have to hope that, you know, Ron Burkle, since he knew Michael Jackson, hopefully will be respectful of at least some aspect of the property. I think that's the best we can we can hope for. But yes, I fully agree with you about the estate. They spend their time going after the very fans who are trying to protect his legacy and suing them instead of doing their job sometimes. So Talitha, coming back to the book, what made you decide to tell this story and put all the effort and time into creating this beautiful book so that we could read your um, incredible experience? Right. Well, in 2012, around 2012, I created a website, a blog, and I told some of these same stories, much more abbreviated versions, sort of less personal. It was really something I wanted to exist to honor Michael and the beautiful relationship he had with his fans. And so after I created that, I thought, "Mm, maybe one day I'll write some more. Let's see. And so I had that thought in the back of my mind. And then I had friends, including and especially Talene, who would tell me every so often, you've got to write a book. Please write a book. When are you going to write a book? And so they always kept that in the forefront of my mind as well. But I had an awful lot of fear and conflict around that. And I I would just say, you know what, I I don't think it's ever going to happen because I still feel the same way now about, you know, my loss and my vulnerability as I did 10 years ago. So I don't think it's ever going to change. I don't think I'm ever going to get to that point where I'm like, oh, now I'm ready to write a book. So I kind of went on with that thought thinking it's never going to happen. And then on January 6th, 2020, I was cycling to the gym. It was a perfect LA day, you know, blue skies and sunshine. 
I was feeling wonderful. And next thing you know, my bike went one way and I went the other and I smacked onto the ground, banged my head really hard. I was out for a moment or two, I guess, probably just with a shock. And then I came to and I could hear someone screaming and I realized it was me and I couldn't oh my move gosh. and I was terrified and I, you know, nothing like this had ever happened to me before. And I didn't know the extent of my injuries. People came, they called 911, the police came, the ambulance came. Ultimately, like I was fine. You know, I was really banged up, but I didn't have any serious injury, thankfully. But it left me really shaken. And in the next few days, you know, I found myself like revisiting that accident and thinking, oh, my goodness, like that could have been so much worse because I banged my head so hard. And sometimes like that happens to someone and that's it. They're done, you know. And I was like, wow, like that, that's how quickly it can end. And it, it really forced me to face my own mortality. And that thought led to the thought, like, what if that had been it? If I had a last moment to regret anything, what would it be? And there were only two things that came to mind. One was leaving my loved ones. And the other was not writing my story and sharing it with the world. And that was it. That was the moment I knew that this was something I had to do. A few days later, I put pen to paper. Literally, I wrote the, my book, the first draft by hand. And the story just started to flow. It was such a magical process right from the beginning. Michael would often talk about when he created his art and he felt like he was picking it up, like it was already created and he was receiving it. And that's how I felt when I was writing my story. Like I was just a conduit for the story to flow through me and onto the page. It was like it was already written somewhere and I was just now receiving it. And so it just flowed right from the beginning to the end. It really flowed. I, I ended up writing it in, in two six-week periods. So I wrote for six weeks I stopped for about six weeks and then I revisited and wrote the rest of it in, in another six weeks so wow that is quite impressive <laughs> so grateful she she finally did I mean her her story you know I've been a very lucky fan too but her story is so unique and aside from that she's such a phenomenal writer that I'm sure any, anyone who's read the book will agree that it just flows just flawlessly from beginning to end and it paints such a detailed picture and, and gives you not all I mean it makes you feel like you're there you're there at the concerts and you're there hugging Michael when you read it oh thank you <laughs> She's so glad after a decade of bugging her. So glad she finally did it. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you for bugging me. Honestly, I don't know if people hadn't been saying that to me and you especially for a decade, I might've just left the idea go a long time ago. So thank you for that. I mean, you happen to be a writer. Yeah. There's a lot of people who have any kind of life experiences, but then they're not a writer. You just happen to be a writer and happen to be one of the very luckiest fans. Right. So And happened to it, write it, it all was... down at the time, which, you know, I couldn't have written the book otherwise. <laughs> Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So I'm somebody who works in book publishing. And so I'm always curious about the process side of it, too. So when you decided to write the book, you wrote it in 12 weeks, which boggles my mind. Um, did you try to find a traditional publisher initially? Or did you always plan to self-publish? How did that part of the process go for you? Well, I was writing the book. I didn't think too much ahead. But I did, I did have the thought like, well, I'm just going to write it. And once I get to the end, I send it off to a publisher. And that's it. I don't have to really deal with it anymore, think about it anymore. So I had that thought in my mind, I think because I didn't want to think ahead and think like I was going to self-publish because I knew that was going to be just such a huge monumental task and very involved. So, and I wanted to just focus on the writing. But then when I got to the end, I got to the last page and I realized I had no choice but to self-publish because 
this was my baby. This was my heart and soul. And there was no way I was sending this off to some corporate entity to bring into the world. Like I needed to control every single aspect of it because once you hand it over to a publisher, they're the ones who decide the title, who decide like the cover artwork, kind of the look and feel of the book, when to release it, how to release it. I needed to be in control of all of those elements. Unfortunately, I'm extremely blessed to have wonderful artistic friends who are just brilliant and talented and everyone stepped forward to help me. Aris designed the book so beautifully. Ariel created magnificent drawings for it. Celine was my rock. She was like my special consultant. You know, I would go to her with everything and she would help me decide. There's so many decisions. <laughs> Shush. <laughs> Not true. I There's did so nothing. Many I just said publish it. That's, that's my only contribution. <laughs> She's the reason there are 30 pictures in this book and not five. Because I was like, oh, <laughs> just put in like maybe this one and this one. And she's like, are you kidding? No, like you need to illustrate your book. And you know, oh, the pictures add so much. Yeah. They do. And like I had no intention of like putting in pictures from the history tour. Like that hadn't even crossed my mind. And she's like, you've got to do that. So then, of course, I had to go and try to track down the owners of these 23 year old photographs from newspapers that don't even exist anymore. So <laughs> that was fun. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. <fun> wow. <laughs> Yeah, so it was incredibly involved. It took me hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of work and probably thousands of dollars. And, you know, but like there was no choice. Once I began, there was this was coming into the world one way or another. And mm-hmm. like I said, so thankful. Also, I have to mention Moon Street in Ireland, who's uh, managed my social media for me. And she's been amazing as well. And everyone's been just so helpful and wonderful. I couldn't have done it alone. That's for sure. It was a collaboration. Absolutely. Well, you're so lucky to have such amazing, supportive people around you as I well. Really I, think. I really am. I really am. Yeah. And yeah, on that note, I mean, I will say just to listeners, you know, when I first bought this book, I thought, oh, gosh, this is going to be like a bunch of fan stories I'm totally jealous of. But I really want to emphasize that I was immediately surprised and truly impressed by all the incredibly fascinating insights that are in your book, Talitha, and the fact that your heart is on every single page of this. You know, real understanding of what kind of fan you were, what was going on in the last months of Michael's life, and just how he engaged with fans and how much they meant to him. Your book is, I think, an invaluable resource, and I really do thank you for writing it. And I very, very much encourage all of our listeners to please Go and buy it because it's number one, just a wonderful book. Number two, you're supporting someone in our community and we should try to do that. We could have a whole separate discussion about self-publishing and how much money you probably had to put into it yourself. But I'm just going to say, please go buy the book and and help help support Talitha a little bit and get all this these wonderful, wonderful gift of these mini stories. So on a final note, I do have one last question for each of you. And this is a question that we like to ask all of our special guests. And that is... Talitha and Talene, how should Michael Jackson be remembered? Do you have another two hours? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very difficult question because it's very difficult to put into words all that he meant to this world and all that he gave and all that he is. But absolutely, he should be remembered as a legendary musician, artist and performer who changed the world forever changed the music industry but he also changed the world more generally and just the whole artistic community um he was an amazing humanitarian he should be remembered for that and i think that it was difficult for michael to live in this world because 
he absorbed all of the pain and all of the suffering. His heart was so open and so compassionate that um, he really literally felt it all. And this is another thing about Michael. You know, he was an elevated soul. Anyone who knows him, who sees him, they see that in him. And when you're around him, you felt elevated as well. He had such a pure energy and aura and presence. And I really wish the world could see that and know that. And I think it's very evident in all of his art in his music. And Michael does live on. He will always live on. As long as there's humanity, there will be Michael Jackson. There will be the music that he gifted to all of us. And I think he will continue to touch and uplift souls for eternity, for as long as there are human beings. I could never say it well enough, but I hope that's okay. (laughs) It's absolutely beautiful. And Talene, how do you feel Michael Jackson should be remembered? If, you know, to summarize it, probably the most incredible talent that's ever walked this earth, the absolute biggest heart that anyone's ever had, and just the kindest, kindest human being that the world's ever seen. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you both so much. You're, You're really wonderful humans. And I have to say too, just on a personal note that I have felt really blessed to get to be friendly with both of you over the last few weeks. And, you know, just thank you again for sharing all these memories and stories. So just to wrap up, can Talitha, can you let listeners know where they can find you online and most importantly, where they can purchase your book? Sure. So the best thing to do is go visit my website. It's michaeljacksonandme.com. And that has got all the links to retailers that sell my book online, includes Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Waterstones, Apple Books, and so on and so on. So there are lots of links there. There's also uh, links to my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And feel free to reach out if you have any difficulty getting a hold of the book in your country. Please reach out. Either I or Moon Street will get back to you. And just reach out generally. I'd love to hear from you. Love to uh, connect with new fans. That's been a, a wonderful experience throughout um, the publication of this book. Just hearing from other people all over the world, it's been wonderful. And I thank everybody who sent any kind of message. And it's just been really like heartfelt and overwhelming, very touching. Fantastic, Talene. Where can people find you? My handle on Instagram is at Talene T A L I N six one three. Super. Great. And I, of course, I'm Elise I'm from Studio San Diego. And you can find the MJ cast all across social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can also go to our website, themjcast.com. Please visit us there and engage with us on any of those platforms. We're very excited to get this episode out there in the world. Thank you, ladies, both again so much. And to our listeners, stay bad. Stay bad.